fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reedus. Each episode of Valar Reedus for the Winds of Winter will feature a guest or guests. We'll take a closer look at each chapter, going through them one by one instead of in batches. A standard warning must apply as well. These chapters are subject to change by the time we see them. And in fact, that's going to be one of the very first things we discuss. This chapter is full of rabbit holes and great discussion topics. We're going to have a lot to say about it. It's a very fun chapter, one of the most popular of the sample chapters. And with us today to discuss it is our good friends and podcast compatriots, Learned Hands Podcast. Hey, Mary and Clint, how are you guys? We are good. Um, I, I just realized when I was looking at this outline and your note that this is called the bloody hand cometh, that we are the learned bloody hands cometh. <laughs> right on. Yes. That's a good point. It all works out. <laughs> we should have. The bloody learned hand or the learned bloody hands. We'll, we'll have I to think work either on works. That. Yeah, it's all yeah. definitely fruitful arrangement of words for sure. So you guys are. Somewhat new on the podcast scene, and you've done a lot of great work already. Uh, lots of excellent episodes, and your approach is somewhat different. You've got a, a bit of a niche, one that's kind of a big niche for this uh, fandom. Why don't you go ahead and tell everyone about it? So uh, we started the Learned Hands podcast uh, in quarantine. It was literally like the day after lockdown. Um, <laughs> <Good timing. laughs> Mary and I started talking like, Maybe we should do a podcast just to like stay sane. Um, and Mary is uh, a wonderful lawyer. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Um, and I had been writing some uh, sort of legal analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire on my blog, um, Laws of Ice and Fire. And we were like, let's do a podcast. And so we did a podcast. And the we've done now 19 episodes, um, 19 full episodes. And what we try and do is we look for legal or ethical or sort of good government dilemmas in A Song of Ice and Fire that we can explore. And we've had some trials, we've had some debates, um, we have had a lot of really interesting episodes that I think we have done a pretty good job of, of building on the wonderful foundation that podcasts like yourself, like this podcast, and Radio Westeros, and Not A Cast, and, and on and on have done in terms of um, analysis and theory crafting and, and all of the great work that has been done. And so we, we try and look at things like lawyers because we are. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. And I, I, you're right. There's a lot of topics that are legally, you know, have a lot to do with legalese and legal situations and it comes down to interpretation and and that's something we love to debate in the fandom. And so having people that, that know their stuff is adds a whole other dimension to it. Um, I'm sure like all you all out there listening, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with Learn Hand Pods, you could probably immediately think of several legal style issues that would come up within Song of Ice and Fire. Some simple ones like Rob's will or just any sort of succession issues when you have multiple claimants or um, rules about the Night's Watch and things like that. So that is really cool. So um, we'll put your expertise to work here today as well as your analytical minds, and we'll have a lot of fun along the way. As well, check out goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's Ally with one L. Nina is uh, always contributing lots of great notes to our episodes. Today is no exception. In fact, I want to shout out you guys in Learn Hands Pod and Nina uh, for being way more knowledgeable about theater and Shakespeare and stuff like that than me, because 
I've long pointed out that uh, as far as George's influences, that's one of my uh, blind spots. I'm not very well versed in such things. So it's great to have people that do know at least some of it or some parts of it. And that gives us a nice, well-rounded batch of takes. Also want to shout out Joe Buckley and Emily of the Erie, the Isle of Faces podcast. They were on just a few weeks ago. I'm sure you'll see them again in a future episode, but they've got their own show over there, Isle of Faces, and they're doing Val Arboretus in tandem with us, so they'll have a Mercy episode out as well, just like they always do. Uh, We will be taking live questions as always. We'll answer the majority of them at the end. A few of them I weave in throughout because they're particularly relevant to certain topics we've chosen to discuss. But if you want to send questions ahead of time, you can do that or you can ask them live and Ashea will fit them in. Uh, Each episode of Valerie Readers for Winds of Winter, of course, also starts with a history of the chapter itself, a little meta history. So this chapter was originally published March 26, 2014. Been a little while. It's almost the exact same length as Ariane 2, slightly longer than Theon 1. You may not remember this if you read Mercy a while back, but at the end of A Dance of Dragons, it's said that she's going to go have this apprenticeship with Isambaro. No one knew what Eisenbarrow was or or who Eisenbarrow was. And in fact, I say what because there was some people guessing it was a place. <laughs> like, send them to Eisenbarrow. <laughs> like, that's a, a building or like a region or something. So <laughs> did you do you all remember your first reading of this chapter? Did you have any sort of reaction like that? Or did you know? Yeah, I think when I first read this chapter, I had been waiting to read all the, the Tiwa chapters at once. And I was in an airport in Dallas. Um, <laughs> and it was just sort of a weird out-of-body experience because it's such a, it's such a, it, there's such a big feel to the chapter. Yeah. And so I just, it's always sort of stuck with me that I felt really displaced when I read the <laughs> chapter. And that was really fitting. Yeah. What about you, Clint? I don't have a specific recollection of when I read this chapter. It would have been after it was published uh, significantly after it was published because I, I didn't finish the books until I think 2015. Okay. So then I went back after I finished the books and was like, oh, there's a bunch of T-Wow chapters. I should probably read those. And when I read them all sort of in no particular order, I was definitely struck most by this. And we're going to talk a lot about it going forward about this sort of atmospheric feel of this mm. Uh, particular chapter that is wholly different than it, the other T-Wow chapters, but I think pretty much all of uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, there is just a beat and, and sort of an atmosphere to it. It's hard to pin down like what word to use, right? Like I'm, yeah, I'm exactly. with you. Like, what do we call it? It's, it's like, it's like hard. It's just like the, the haze, the fog of Bravos, like really describes mm-hmm. it's like hard to find the right words for it. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's uh, for me, it was kind of similar. It's, it's there's something about it. It's hard to put your finger on that that feels different about this chapter. And Arya's identity has shifted. Part of it is a different area. I mean, yeah, there's <laughs> it's it, it's like a, a recipe of different ingredients that adds up to this thing that's very hard to quantify or qualify. Uh, I think all of our listeners can just listen to our old episode on Mercy to get our reactions straight after it came out. That's true. We did uh, we did an episode on it pretty quickly back when our podcast mm-hmm. was fairly new. So it's very different. Uh, not necessarily... I remember very clearly, I was very upset 
at this chapter. I w- upset is putting it extremely, but I was turned off. I could tell that the five-year gap was, sk- was skipped mm. and I didn't think it was for the best. Mm. I've kind yeah. of come around a bit on that. I still think there needed to be some gap, but it was uh, very dark yeah. with Arya. And yeah. a lot of people said, well, what's the difference between sexual violence and violence? But it, it was different to me. It was. And I, I don't know about you guys. Were you uh, particularly shocked? Mm, I don't think I was shocked, but I was maybe surprised, and but, but not entirely surprised because it seemed like these, maybe not just specific situations, but as the characters got older, the young Stark kids got older, they would be in sexual situations. And if Arya is training to kill people, that would be a way, to, like seducing someone and killing them is a, you know, we've seen that already. Like there's already, in fact, we have a reference in this episode of one of the notorious sex workers kills men and rolls their bodies into the river <laughs> or into the canals. And uh, that's, you know, that just gives you the idea like, yep, they're pretty vulnerable in that state. So I didn't even, I was not at all shocked when I read the chapter. It kind of took me learning other people were shocked to recognize it. And it fits in well with where I expected Arya's arc to go. And I also felt like it's not particularly shocking given the amount of both violence and sexual violence that Arya has herself witnessed um, or been around in her earlier chapters. But I completely agree that even a two-year gap would have made it so much less jarring. Not necessarily only because of the sexual content, but just because it's such a huge difference in terms of Arya's sort of personality and level of experience. But, you know, some of that might be the point, to be honest. Yeah. What about you, Clint? What do you think? Did you have any kind of strong reaction like that? or um, I, I would, I think, share Mary's reaction. Um, mm. <laughs> like, I, I think that the sexual violence aspect of it is, it's definitely intentional on George's part to make you feel uncomfortable about this. Um, and that's why... That's one of the ways in which I think it you, you end up in this weird purgatory space uh, in this chapter, and we'll talk a lot about this, but and that sexual violence aspect is like a way of sort of jarring you out of it mm. into more of the things that are more familiar to a Song of Ice and Fire readers. Yeah, and it's certainly not glorified, right? It's not like he's not no. saying this is good. You know, the worst people get killed. And it's not unrealistic, I don't think. Right. Little girls getting catcalled is really gross, but it definitely happens. Ba- you know, the character Bobino doesn't seem terribly unrealistic, being kind of gross mm-hmm. and touchy-feely. That seems like he's drunk all the time. Like, that seems completely, like, real-world-ish. I, don't, I think it's kind of like what, a lot of what George does. He doesn't really pull punches when he tries to be realistic with uncomfortable topics. Yeah, he doesn't really pull punches there, does he? <laughs> So yeah, that's going to be a big part of this going through. There's definitely a lot of people when you when we were reviewing uh, user comments, uh, questions from you all. A lot of people brought this subject up about how the top the chapter should be approached or whether people were uncomfortable with it, things like that. So a lot of, a lot of people wonder if it will be partially rewritten, um, not necessarily because of the sexual violence, but because of the age stuff, right? Which sort of relates, but not not directly, not in that same way. So very curious what uh, if George will make any alterations in this chapter. We've given this, this one a nickname, The Bloody Hand Cometh 
because we can't stop with the It's Always Sunny references, a reference to the Nightman cometh, and <laughs> the alternate title, Needle to Lamy's Revenge. Yeah. Hmm. She woke with a gasp, not knowing who she was or where. And frankly, neither did us readers first time through. But a wolf dream is described beginning with the next sentence, and that clears it up pretty quickly. Arya was dreaming that she was Nymeria again, not knowing she was dreaming of reality as it happened in real time. She might sleep better if Bravos and the Riverlands were in the same time zone. Rookie skin changer <laughs> mistake, to be honest, but she hasn't gotten the benefit of training like some members of her family. She's getting quite a bit of teaching in other areas, though. Perhaps we might say Mercy's mentoring has been mostly mummery and murder. <laughs> the dream involved her chasing down prey, and that's a rather apt setup, given how this chapter, featuring a play within, plays out. What hour? Mercy called down to the man who stood by the snake's uplifted tail, pushing her onward with his pole. The waterman gazed up, searching for the voice. Four, by the titan's roar. His words echoed hollowly off the swirling green waters in the walls of unseen buildings. She's an apprentice to Izambaro at a theater called The Gate and has been for some time now, long enough for her to become familiar with the people who work and act there, their particular needs and peculiarities, the theater business, and quite a few tricks of the mummer's trade. Though she's used to working backstage and has occasionally been on stage for a non-speaking role, this time she actually has a few lines. The play is called The Bloody Hand, as in Hand of the King, as in Tyrion Lannister. Along with him, it features exaggerated versions of many characters and events we read about in the first three books, if not more. The thing is, we don't know, because we don't get to see the end of it. They're throwing this play about Westerosi people and affairs to honor an envoy from Westeros. It turns out to be Sir Harry Swift, whom we readers and podcasters have jointly mocked many times, and rightly so. If they knew this man better... <laughs> they might not be so quick to throw anything in his honor other than additional mockery. Mercy makes her way through Bravos, giving us more detail on this fascinating city, but not as much as there might be, as she thinks of it as the thickest fog she's ever seen. Not long after she navigates the fog, she arrives at the gate. Zimbaro then addresses the company. The king of Westeros is sending his envoy to do homage to the king of the Mumbers tonight. He told his troop. We will not disappoint our fellow monarch. We, said the snapper, who did all the costumes for the mummers. Is there more than one of him now? He's fat enough to count for two, whispered Bobono. Every mummer's troop had to have a dwarf. He was theirs. When he saw Mercy, he gave her a leer. The king of Westeros is Tommen, of course, but it's apparently his mother who sent Sir Harris. He's there to get money from the Iron Bank, and whom we know have already decided to support Stannis. Eh. <laughs> we know most of this already, but Arya herself learns it here by overhearing the guards speak of it. But she's not terribly concerned with what they have to say because she's recognized one of them. There were four guards, big, hard-looking men in ringmail with heavy Westerosi longswords sheathed at their hips. Their crimson cloaks were bordered in whirls of gold, and golden lions with red garnet eyes clasped each cloak at the shoulder. When Mercy glanced at the faces beneath the gilded, lion-crested helm, her belly gave a quiver. The gods have given me a gift. Her fingers clutched hard at Dana's arm. That god, the one on the end behind the Black Pearl, 
What of him? Do you know him? No. Mercy had been born and bred in Bravos. How could she know some Westerosi? But Aria knows who it is. Seizing the opportunity after the play begins and most are distracted, she pretends to be distracted by Wrath the Sweetling and tells him so. And he seizes the opportunity. It was the easiest thing in the world to convince them that they needed to go someplace private. He's hardly able to contain his excitement, and neither is she, but for oh so very different reasons. She's so excited that she doesn't fully think through how to handle what comes after, and he's so excited he doesn't seem to have even the slightest bit of inkling he's in grave danger. That is, until Needle cuts his femoral artery, and realization comes quickly, but not as quickly as the blood. Blood that she'll have to clean up. What a bother, but well worth it for this very sweet moment. I'm bleeding like a stuck pig. I can't walk on this. Well, she said. I don't know how you get there then. You'll need to carry me. See? Thought Mercy. You know your line, and so do I. Think so, asked Arya sweetly. Rafa Sweetling looked up sharply as the long, thin blade came sliding from her sleeve. She slipped it through his throat beneath the chin, twisted and ripped it back out sideways with a single smooth slash. A fine red rain followed, and in his eyes, the light went out. Valar Morgulis, Arya whispered. But Raph was dead and did not hear. But in the land where the spirits of the dead reside and keep watch over the living, Lamy Greenhands heard and saw and nodded in approval. Yes. <laughs> Really, there's hard, it's harder to write a better revenge moment than that. It's just so sweet. Like, we're not supposed to root for things like that, but we are supposed to root for things like that. I don't know. How, do you, how are we supposed to feel about that? <laughs> Let's get some general reactions about the chapter, just how it makes you feel. Like, is that satisfying? Is, that, is it a little dark? Or is it both? For me, in contrast to a lot of what we get with Lady Stoneheart, this just feels really good to me without the like, oh, I'm also very troubled about it. Mm. it. It's not the getting what we want in the most terrible way, at least not yet. So it feels, it feels like a very satisfying chapter to me. And in addition, all the atmospherics like we alluded to before, uh, I just love the ambiance of Bravos. And it seems to fit so well with the the juxtaposition of this weird place, plus Arya kind of rediscovering her Stark identity and her list. It's just, it's my favorite <laughs> T-Wow chapter. Right on. What about you, Clint? So far. Yeah, so far, right? We got plenty more to cover. Right, right. <laughs> I agree. I also think it's my favorite T-Wow chapter, uh, released T-Wow chapter. And for a number of different reasons, there is that great ending um, and I, I tweeted about this, I think, last week. And uh, a guy, Joe2000 on Twitter, mentioned that unlike all of the other T.O.W. chapters, it's, a, it's an actually complete story yeah, and not a setup of something else that's going to happen later. And so you have this encapsulated, contained narrative that is beautiful and interesting and ethereal. And you also get this fist-pumping revenge moment it's just great. I love it. It's it's lyrical, beautiful. Um, the the prose is wonderful, and so yeah. I have a theory here. Given that this the chapter starts with the wolf dream, and given that we know a few things about the prologue, and one of those things is that it has 
Jane Westerling in it. Because it appears to be the party being taken south to Casterly Rock to enjoy imprisonment. Uh, and that would be Jamie having sent them to be led by Forley Prester. And Forley Prester is perhaps a candidate to be the POV for the prologue. Now, given this POV, uh, the location of this POV, it could take place. Uh, it should take place near the Riverlands, or at least on the way to the west from the Riverlands. And thus, it has a chance to have Nymeria in it. Given that Arya wakes up having this wolf dream, it's entirely possible it's a segue directly from the prologue. Uh, our Nymeria does something, and then Arya wakes up with some vague memory of it that she just dreamed of, like as if it's just happening. If that's true, not only will it be a really cool connection, that'll just, it'll stand mm-hmm. on its own as a neat point, but it'll give us a framing for the timeline. It'll tell us like a pretty directly when that moment is happening relative to what is happening with Arya's arc which we usually don't get that kind of uh, very precise timeline stuff for characters so far apart physically. Uh, only things like the Comet have ever been able to bring us together like that. Interesting possibility. Do you guys, have you guys have given thought to the order of the chapters? Is that um, something you've bothered with? Uh, I've, I've only thought about it a little bit, and this one kind of occurred to me. But Oh, go ahead, Clint. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, I, I think it's a great thought, um, and I could totally see it being the first chapter. Mm. Then if... Um, or the first full chapter. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Right? Yeah, I think about a year ago, I and I still have this. I have a spreadsheet that I called TWOW Squares, where I'm trying, where I'm trying to outline where each of the released and speculative chapters come, and how many chapters I think each each character will have. Mm. So I am super into that, and I that's one of the reasons I think this. I think that the the theory about Nymeria and the wolf pack, aka Chekhov's wolf pack, yes. uh, <laughs> is is so interesting. Particularly, I'm interested in how this chapter will fit on fit in with the events in the north as well. Yeah, and this is a nice little thematic parallel of a sort. We have a, our first section here called the New Aria, and we called a section in Ariane 1, the new Ariane, to talk about how she's changed and matured and has a different outlook on power and some things while also having a similar outlook in other ways, even as other things have changed. Same goes for Sansa slash Elaine. There's some things that have changed about her. Some tone, uh, some personality differences can be detected, but she's still very much Sansa. Of course, Arya is a much stronger parallel to Sansa than Ariane might be because of obviously they're both Starks, but there's the name parallel with the cat, Catalane stuff that we've talked about, mm-hmm. and a few other parallels that are maybe a little under the radar. For fun, of course, it appears that Mercy is playing a character inspired by Sansa. The character is sort of a, maybe a mashup of Shay and Sansa, but that's a pretty meta that she's sort of playing her own sister, which is just great work by George because that's it's pretty easy to miss that. <laughs> but when you catch it, it's like, oh, yeah. That's nice. One of y'all cited this, uh, this one of her, her final lines of the chapter here, where she's just after she's murdered Raph. Let's talk about that for a minute. It's a good segue, uh, a good beginning part here for Arya and discussing the changes as you guys brought up the five-year gap. Let's have a quote here. Mercy. 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 She's saying sadly, A foolish, giddy girl she'd been, but good-hearted. She would miss her, and she would miss Dana and the Snapper and the rest, even Isimbaro and Babono. Real quick shout-out to the folks who participated in the audio production. That's Lady Gwen's voice you hear. 
Mercy was played by Girl Nettles. Who is in the chat right now. Oh, excellent. Hey there, Girl Nettles. And you heard other folks like Michael Klarfeld as Bobino. You heard Val as in Because Geek as the snapper. And you heard uh, Matteo Barbagallo as Eisenbar. Excuse me, it's Matteo Barbagallo. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about this quotation is it's such a powerful set of thoughts about growing up, mm. about abandoning the innocence of your old identity. And not only does that fit in with Arya's story and Arya saying goodbye to Mercy as a character that she played and to the character of Sansa that she plays, there's also huge parallels to Sansa's reckoning with the same themes, with the abandonment of innocence. And it really calls to mind one of my favorite Sansa quotations, which is from Sansa 2, A Storm of Swords, They're children, Sansa thought. They are silly little girls. They've never seen a battle. They've never seen a man die. They know nothing. Their dreams were full of songs and stories, the way hers had been before Joffrey cut her father's head off. Sansa pitied them. Sansa envied them. Mm. And this is so much, to me, uh, evocative of, I mean, Mercy saying what a foolish, giddy girl she'd been. And I just... I love it. And of course, here Sansa is thinking of someone else. She's thinking of Marjorie and her cohorts, but it's also very much a reflection on who Sansa is and her journey. Nice. Well said. Yeah. I think the chapter tries to make it opaque because everything is opaque in this chapter. But I think it's pretty clear if you listen closely that she is playing Sansa and not anybody else. Okay. And the the, the reason for that is that is is twofold. One, kind of thematically, this chapter is about Arya retaining her Stark identity, and we'll talk about ways in which she references directly her Stark identity throughout. Um, But two, um, she mentions that one of Mercy's lines in the play, she says, most of her lines are just, please, you know, don't rape me, don't rape me, or or, or, oh no. But one of her lines is, I'm still a maid. Oh, yeah, good catch. So if she's still a maid, she can't be shed. Right, right. Um, I, I think that uh, Mary's point about it reflecting on that Sansa quote just, you know, makes it all the stronger, the, the connection between those two characters. What's so interesting, too, as an add-on, is that she doesn't, if she's thought about the fact that it's her sister that she's playing, those thoughts happened before this chapter. They happened off page. Right. Similarly, right. Uh, as we'll get to in a minute, there's the author slash playwright notable named Fario Forel, which... If you didn't think of Sirio Pharrell there, well, you're thinking of it now. And right. Arya doesn't have a reaction to that either. But presumably, she'd heard of Fario Pharrell months ago. She wouldn't have had a reaction today during this chapter. It would have been a while ago. So it does a good job adding to the mystique of this chapter and the like, the fog around it. Like, this is a changed person. She's like She's not even reacting to things Arya would. Well, she did react to them just months ago, presumably. <laughs> It's it's really neat too the the identity stripping that that happens here. There's lots of little clues uh, along with big clues, and you wonder how it all fits into the combination of faceless man training and her own struggles with identity and her own very stubborn maintaining of her inner self as Arya, despite all those outward changes. Uh, I think we've talked about before how 
shaving your head or shaving your body is very much part of the brainwashing arsenal when you become a soldier or when you go to prison or all these things, you get shaved. They cut your hair off. They hose you down. It's part of establishing a new identity, kind of the way you came into the world. You come into the world without much hair. <laughs> They're trying to restore your brain subconsciously to that state. It's a psychological technique. And that fits in super well here. She hears that, yeah, shaving your head makes it easier to put wigs on. And that's just true. That's just a logical fact, I suppose, about wearing wigs. And of course, as we'll get to later, there's another certain someone who uh, shaves his head as part of hiding his identity as well. But there's another wrinkle here that doesn't apply to that character, who, of course, is Varus. Varus doesn't use magic, or at least as far as we know, if we believe his line about not trusting in magic, which I tend to. It's one of the things I do believe about him. But that's a whole other story. We're not going to get into that. Point being, Joe Buckley and patron Eric Ford bring up something interesting, which is that in the ugly little girl chapter, when she's wearing a new face, a real face, not a disguised face, actually puts someone's skin on, she feels impressions and emotions and memories and pain from that face. It's got memories of the body it used to belong to. So the question is, is that part of this? Is that part of what's affecting Arya as well? Because this is one of those faces. At the end of that chapter, the kindly man looks at her, grabs her chin and says, well, you'll need a new face for that. A pretty one, I think, this time. Right? Mm -hmm. So this is not Arya's face. This is another face from the sanctum. Uh, and that could be potentially impacting her personality, which would be, you know, about one of a dozen things that are impacting her identity here. Do y'all have any thoughts on that? Or is that just something that you just uh, should acknowledge as a possibility and you can't really get much detail on? Someone brought that up to me recently, Shiloh Carroll, and I just thought I never thought of that and it makes so much sense to me. Mm, it really is. I agree. I, I think that it's got to be that way. Mm -hmm. It's got to be that... Arya is acting like Mercy um, because Mercy is in some way inside of her, or at least inside that face. Mm. Um, and maybe that's you know part of what the sort of ethereal atmosphere of this chapter is. Uh, yeah, it certainly adds to it. Yeah, I mean, Joe writes, Mercy's pretty happy-go-lucky. She's laughing, she jokes, she gets serious a few times mm -hmm. when she has to, you know, get Bobino to stop touching her or what have you. But it's not how Arya would behave. This is Mercy. This is a very defined, different personality. And Joe marks, uh, along with what you were saying, Mary, about growing up, this really fits with that theme. It's not really her, but she's still doing adult things that younger Arya wouldn't do, like renting her own room, uh, things like that. Sure. Yeah. And we have some insight from Mercy herself, Girl Nettles, oh, cool. who said that she thinks Arya is so sad because when she's Mercy, she feels close to Sansa. She gets to be a giggly, pretty girl like Sansa. So saying goodbye to Mercy is like saying goodbye to her sister again. Wow. Which I think is a great point that I didn't think of. That is a really good point because... That's a great point. Yeah, because she, we didn't, we, as we but just pointed out, any thought she would have had about how this is her sister would have already happened because it's, she's been playing this role for a while. She's been preparing for this role for a while. That's a really good point. And she has always, she did. That's one of the first things we learn about her is that, you know, she's a little 
distant from her older sister and a little jealous of her because she's older, gets all the attention, you know, she's pretty, etc. So that like that's that part of Arya that we're introduced to very early on is very no- it's like one of the most normal things about her. Like, yeah, your sister's prettier, whatever. You know, like that's super normal. Like your brother's more athletic than you. What like very <laughs> this is extremely common child uh, problem for a child to have or to perceive. Building on that, the actual very, very first line in Arya's very, very first chapter ever was Arya's stitches were crooked again. And how clever is that that we even have as a little tidbit in this note that Arya, well, that Mercy is not good at sewing. (laughs) It's just, it's so, it's a tiny little detail that means so much. Yeah, I think this is one of the ways in which um, her Stark identity is retained and you know brought out in this chapter is you know the fact that Mercy is still not good at sewing, and I I just love that. Um, it's just a a really great callback to that yeah that very first Arya chapter that she's still Arya. I completely agree, and I I also like that it's this it's these layers, right? It's Arya kind of peeking through the mask and that resonating with what we know about her. And I I like that because it's George encouraging you to look beyond the narrator and kind of think about the ways in which they're unreliable. And it reminds me a lot of Ned's early chapters in which when you reread them, you can see the things he's deliberately not thinking. Bravos was a crooked city. The streets were crooked, the alleys were crookeder, and the canals were crookedest of all. And what she's doing is somewhat crooked, working for a, a murder cult. <laughs> she may not use her skills for evil or, or even for neutral, but we'll see. We'll see about that. Another great catch from Flick commenter Sophia points out that the, there's another crooked mention here, the, the thumb on the sign of the bloody hand is crooked. And she thought it would have been maybe even funnier if it had been the little finger that was crooked. (laughs) (laughs) Good one, Sophia. We love the wordplay around here. Another thing that really shines through, right? Of course, the the big moment is her seeing Raph and she can barely contain herself and she has to really put effort into reminding herself who she is, whereas a lot of the rest of the time, it's somewhat effortless. And that is a big part of it. Like, she has an iron sense of right and wrong. Uh, and of justice. That too was present in her first chapter. Right away, she's, you know, she's adamant that what happened to Micah was wrong. It really shook her because she at least thought her father would see it that way too. And, and it was like, well, mm-hmm. this is not what life is like. It's why she killed Darion, right? He broke the laws of the Night's Watch and that's her brother in command over there. So she's pretty straightforward in her mind. So if Darion deserved it, well, then there's no way in Winterhell anyone's going to tell her that Raph the Sweetling didn't deserve it, too. She saw what he did. She saw him murder a child. There's no way, there's no argument here, right? <laughs> so, and, and other things, too. It wasn't just that, although Lamy is enough. So I, I really think that this is another adding, just continuously building up to some sort of break with the Faceless Man. Maybe it'll be triggered by this event. Coming back to what you brought up, Mary, or at least you said you were excited about, is, is we talked about may, when will Elaine become Sansa? Meaning in the chapter. When will it say Sansa? And our guess is her third chapter, because maybe the next one is when the tournament happens and she's revealed. So then they, once she's, she's outed, then you have Sansa. 
And uh, it's kind of like how Theon eventually became Theon again after being the Prince of Winterfell and all this. Any rough predictions for when it'll be Arya again as a chapter? Are we several chapters away from that? Maybe half a book? Or do you think it'll be pretty soon? I think it'll be almost the same time as Sansa. Nice. Um, yeah. I think he's really, George is really deliberately playing with that timing. Part of the reason that I'm so fixated on Arya playing Sansa here is because you also have in this, this mix-up of who is what Stark and who gets to be themselves, you have Jane Westerling, be, sorry, not Jane Westerling, Jane Poole being fake Arya. Yeah. And that's happening concurrent with this whole timeline. Mm. And so I really think we're going to get an unraveling of all of these assumed identities around the same time. Okay. That sounds great. Yeah, that would be fitting, wouldn't it? Just to have unleash all that at once and have that sort of climax. It's a good call. Gosh, I would love to see those pieces click back into place yeah. um, around the same time. I, I would love to see that. I just need to imagine all the other things that George will do to make those moments kind of link up or sync up or whatever. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> just, just thinking about the things that man will pull off. It's going to be cool. Let's talk about the Wolf Dreams a little specifically. Her true name was Mercedine, but Mercy was all anyone ever called her. Except in dreams. She took a breath to quiet the howling in her heart, trying to remember more of what she'd dreamt. But most of it had gone already. There had been blood in it, though, and a full moon overhead, and a tree that watched her as she ran. Those are chilling details, but they also really tell us (laughs) a lot. She doesn't understand what's going on, which has been a recurring theme. She doesn't seem to grasp it, even though she's used cat's eyes to see as a workaround to being blind. She still hasn't been able to figure out what's going on. But that's understandable. She's young. And there's like, what are you, how are you supposed to figure this out on your own? As we pointed out, Bran had a mentor. He gave John a little kick in the pants around Clash of Kings, uh, John 7. That moment right before Mm -hmm. Aurel comes down and nearly takes his eye out. So that's very meaningful, but nothing like that for, for Arya. Stefan B. points out an interesting thing here. Uh, in the beginning of A Dance of Dragons, we see Shaggy Dog, presumably on Skagos, uh, fighting with a uh, goat slash unicorn. And <laughs> there's this line about how the different sibling, well, different wolf siblings can all be sensed except for the one that's gone. And that would presumably be Lady. And maybe it seems that, that the siblings are more detectable like you can feel each other better, like more more aware of each other when they're in the wolf dream. And that be, might be why this has happened. Bran may be going into the wolf dreams to find his siblings. As we know, we haven't had a Bran chapter since pretty early in A Dance of Dragons. So whatever's been happening off page with him, there's a lot of room for it, whatever it is. But it's also kind of a test. Like she doesn't know who or, who or where she is. That just says a lot about what she's been going through, about identity and all that back and forth. Nina writes, the first sentence not only summarizes the entire chapter, but her whole time with the faceless men. They're all, they were trying to get her to be no one. That's, that is kind of the ideal mm-hmm. state for her. If she wakes up and doesn't know who she is or where she is, it sounds kind of like what they're aiming for. But we don't want that for her. And we also don't really think that's going that way because... Arya's just so stubborn about being Arya internally. I mean, she's carrying around needles. She's doing all these other things. Is that sort of how you all perceive it? Or I'd like to get your thoughts on her 
struggle to hold on to herself? Or is it even a struggle? Because it seems to be kind of natural to her. She doesn't really seem to, I don't know, she doesn't really seem to fade. She just stays Arya even as her facade goes through different iterations. Yeah, I think that she is becoming more comfortable with the duality of her self. Um, This outward facing, faceless, (laughs) outward facing, uh, (laughs) outward outward faceless man, right? Uh, Versus who she is inside of herself and who she, as you point out, stubbornly refuses to not be. Um, And this is one of the things that, one of the reasons why Arya is one of my favorite characters, because we all struggle with the duality of man. Like that's, you know, there's a whole philosophical trope about it, Mm -hmm. but you you see it so starkly in her (laughs) chapters. God, uh, I I come on (laughs) History of Westeros and got to drop some puns, I guess. It's in the air. Like you just, right. I've got a quota, I guess. Uh, Anyway, point is, yeah, I just, I absolutely think that this, that her wolf dreams uh, are a way of um, her own expression of her Stark identity. I love this little intro part um, where there's a tree that watches her as she ran, as she runs, and you know it's like, "Hi, Bran, how are you? Um, good to see you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, thanks for popping up in an Arya chapter." And I, I love, I love this idea as well that that Stefan B mentioned that. It could be sort of when you're warging, you're sort of broadcasting on the warg net or something. <laughs> yeah, that's a good and way to put it. it you're, you're just sort of easier to pick up. Um, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Like they're sort of activated in that magical way. And so other people who are practicing types of magic can pick them out. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it pops up um, elsewhere, and, right? Like John, when John meets... Baramir and when he meets Borak, they're like, oh, right, hey, brother. Right. They're like, they instantly know. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, Radio Westeros did this really great uh, episode on uh, the In at the Crossroads is this liminal space. They did indeed. And I think, yeah, I think Bravos is a liminal space for, mm, for yeah. Arya because it's a constant state of transition. And I think really specifically, Clint kind of alluded to this before, it's a purgatory where Arya is you know, kind of unmoored from time. And the other thing that's significant about purgatory is it's a place to forge your identity. It's a place of moral testing. And absolutely, that's what Arya is going through here. Yeah. She's discovering her sense of moral identity. Um, and that is a huge, to me, theme of this chapter. Uh, and it relates in a lot of ways I would contrast it to someone like Theon, who plainly sort of goes through hell and then is also sent into this sense of of purgatory. And what is Theon's refrain? It's you have to know your name. Mm. And here that's exactly what Arya is doing. She's remembering her name. And to me, that's the test that she needs to pass in order to be released from purgatory to go back to Westeros. Someone in the chat asked what liminal is. It's, you know, it's a space between spaces. Mm. It's a good way to put it. Nice. That's a very, very good take. I like that a lot, Mary. And maybe to add on just a little bit, it does really work that way. Even if you think about the attitude presented by the faceless men, they're very like in between good and evil. They're like, no, we're neither. We're not, we're not even really neutral. We're like a force of nature. We're the force of death. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
let's move on to a similar related topic here. One of the parts about her that we talked about that's unchangeable, not just her stark nature, but the supernatural presence within her or whatever, however you want to qualify, quantify that she's got these powers. We just talked about the cat thing. And the cat thing is not new for Arya. Her cats have been part of her arc since she got to King's Landing and started training with Sirio. And they've stayed with her this whole time. She went into the dungeons chasing after the cat Valerian. She's identifies with cats here. We talked about mm-hmm. the cat being a, a workaround for blindness. And of course, Cat of the Canals. Her mother's name, Catelyn. Here is more cat action in quote form. She heard a cat yowl plaintively. Ravos was a good city for cats, and they roamed everywhere, especially at night. In the fog, all cats are gray, Mercy thought. In the fog, all men are killers. And I think it's building. I just love to point out that almost everyone on Arya's list and still alive, well, there's Gregor, so you can't say... You've got to just say people still walking around. <laughs> right. He's right. at the Red Keep. Cersei's at the Red Keep. Marin Trant is at the Red Keep. Yeah, they brought him to Bravos for the show for, you know, but nope, he's at the Red Keep. So there's just pretty much everyone she wants to kill is at the Red Keep. And <laughs> the people that are at the Red Keep, maybe that changes because the king about to be foisted on the realm by Varus, the very man she overheard, thanks to this cat chasing. So this is all you can see how all this kind of ties together. Mm-hmm. is uh, he might have taken over by then or his team might have taken over by then. But think of her going down into those tunnels, right? She goes down into the tunnels chasing after the Balerian cat and then stumbles on Varus and Illyrio. I've talked about this before and I think this is building, adding to this idea. Imagine if there had been her skin-changing ability present at that moment. She would have been able to see a lot better. The cats that are down there, she could have used their eyes instead and the cats can see better in the dark. The wolf dreams are part of who she is. The cat stuff is part of who she is. Let's consider that. Keep that in mind as we examine this next very peculiar quote. Last of all, she threw her cloak across her shoulders. It was a real mummer's cloak, purple wool lined in red silk with a hood to keep the rain off and three secret pockets too. She'd hid some coins in one of these, an iron key in another. A blade in the last. A real blade. Not a fruit knife like the one on her hip. But it did not belong to Mercy, no more than her other treasures did. This could all fit into the cat stuff pretty well because we have her remembering who she is and we have these items she's carrying. We know the blade is needle. That's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. The other items we'll talk about in a second. But Clint, you have another point about cats uh, as well, don't you? Yeah. um, And it ties into what Mary was talking about about liminal spaces mm. is that there's a long history of cultures believing that cats are liminal spaces in and of themselves. Egyptians worshipped cats. They sort of, in, in some ways, because they thought they were both sort of alive and dead in the in both oh. spaces at the same time. It's also referenced in one of my favorite middling Keanu Reeves movies in um, <laughs> Constantine. He talks about it, how cats are both in purgatory in hell and in um, the real space uh, at the same time. They definitely don't obey the laws of nature. We know that much. That's right. Right. They're absolutely playing on that. And George is, I think, really playing on that theme of we're in this, to use Mary's phrase, we're in this liminal space and we're dealing with these liminal beings and, and Arya being, you know, sort of 
a cat reference in and of herself uh, for all of those ways. Like, like you mentioned with Valerian, I think, I think it all fits. Yeah. Um, I, I also love this little quote about her mummer's cloak um, and how it has pockets. It reminds me of how every, every time you compliment somebody on a nice new outfit, they go, thanks. It, it has pockets. (laughs) I like that. Sacred pockets are awesome. I mean, let's be honest. I, don't right. ever have anything that requires a secret pocket, <laughs> but I like having them. I like to know that if I acquired some really sort of cool Aziz, item, really okay. I have one thing that requires <laughs> secrecy. <laughs> sure, <laughs> yes. I when you're talking about pockets, the only thing I can think of is uh, what has it got in its pocketses? <laughs> <laughs> no ring like, apparently, yeah. but a blade, <laughs> a key, and some coins. Let's talk about those first. Let me get a here's a good paragraph by Nina to kind of kick us off here. Even Ari's costume nicely reflects her layers of identity. Her very plain, indeed poor initial outfit, which is a shapeless brown wool dress over her head with stockings that need mending. Worn cracked boots. Right? So this is all very like grubby, I suppose. Comforting. Probably comfortable, maybe. But she could probably use some better boots. But it's it's fine. But it's covered by, quote, a real mummer's cloak. Purple wool and red silk. Rich fabrics which deliberately clash with the clothes underneath. So, yeah, the really nice cloak, really shabby pants and boots. It's it's very much a dichotomy kind of. Um, probably looks pretty interesting. You know, you probably might look twice at that. Like that, what's going on there? But it's super interesting that she's not only compartmentalizing her personality. This isn't art. This isn't like when Bran is taught that a little part of each. Uh, singer remains in each raven. It's not like that. This is still very much Arya. This isn't a little part. There's a big Arya compartment holding all the Arya-ness inside Arya's head, Mercy's head here. And this is sort of like a a little minuscule microcosm of that. The pockets that contain things that belong to Arya, not Mercy. So, Needle, straightforward. We don't need to talk about that specifically. What is up with these coins? Because you might be like, oh, well, everyone carries a little emergency money. Well, yeah, but why would it? She need to it to be Arya's emergency money and not Mercy's emergency or just some emergency money. It's specifically Arya's coins, so they have to be special in one in some sense, I think. And maybe they're just like keepsakes or mementos, but maybe it's one of these like maybe she stole some of the poison coins, or it's a faceless man coin. Right? Yeah, she could have could some be. of the yeah to give out to be like about you know hey you need to I'm gonna recruit you, but that would that be Arya's or Mercy's? Yeah, I, I don't. It's all these. All the answers have small problems here, so it's uh, it's very curious. Oh right, yeah. You know, I I think that there's a thematic reason that there's coins, right? The dual nature of identity. Ah, um, yes. Mm. The coin, the the debt, the skull, and the crown kind of thing that that Illyrio points out. Well, we'll have to leave that one as a mystery for now. Just a very big curiosity. I'm really curious about those coins. The key, perhaps equally, if not more, curious. Why is it Arya's key? What is it a key to? Here's a f- strange word. Uh, now, I searched for the word key in all of Arya's chapters. It only comes up five times in all of the chat, mm. all of her books, um, all the books, all her chapters combined. And that's not counting compound words like key holder, which, of course, in that you wonder why I choose that one. No, you don't wonder why I choose that one. We'll be talking about the key holders later. So I was trying to find clues like what key, what this might have to do with. Is there any kind of other keys that have come up that might connect to this. So another, not really. Uh, the key to the inner sanctum of the faceless men where they keep the faces is described as ornate. The door is iron, so maybe it's also an iron key. So maybe she's got that key. 
I don't know why she'd need to steal that key to go back and steal another face. It doesn't seem like that would be necessary. But speaking of thematic parallels, several of you out there noticed that her mentor, her recruiter, Jock and Hagar, is currently traipsing around with a key he stole from Pate uh, after arranging to pay for it. And he, of course, paid for it with a poison coin. So <laughs> we have things that kind of maybe connect. I picked up the same contrast that it's not an ornate key. And I, I do wonder if it's something else in the caverns uh, that are beneath the House of Black and White, um, whether it could be related to the Iron Bank. Mm-hmm. And so I like that George hasn't made it the ornate key, right? Because I think that would be too much of a giveaway. Uh, and I do think it's likely something different because it seems like she wouldn't have she wouldn't be able to take the key to the inner mm. sanctum without someone noticing. Mm. So she's likely chosen something that someone doesn't think is quite as significant. And something that she doesn't plan on using right away. She took it to use later. It's not something like, oh, I need this now. Like she's been holding on to this for a while, it seems like. Uh, I mean, it feels like a safe assumption well, given she's been at this, at Zimbaros for a while. Um, right. So that makes me wonder if it's a key to a place that she's hiding stuff. Ooh. Mm. I wonder what she would be hiding because she's got Neil with her, but there's other stuff she might want to hide. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. And it kind of makes her a key holder of senses, in a sense. <laughs> so there were six key holders in attendance. Yeah, that's right. There weren't five. There were six. <laughs> Let's talk about a couple of general themes and parallels here. There's a lot of connections. We've already named a lot of connections um, that span Arya's entire arc, some that span a lot of the chapters in this general vicinity, meaning other chapters close to this one. That's one we'll start with here. The huge number of of conceptual watchtowers or being watched or eyes uh, in Ariane 2, we, we went off very thoroughly about how many different towers were in that chapter or things that were like towers and not to mention the stone faces, the forest of stone faces below uh, ground in the, in the weirwood caves there. Here we have this quote. The long way also took her across the bridge of eyes with its carved stone faces. With that, we also have Stannis's tower at the Crofter's Village, which is a big mm-hmm. watchtower. We have that line in those chapters the old gods are watching from their aisle because there's a werewood with a carved face at the Crofter's Village that Bran is possibly watching from. The Titan, talk about a... The Titan of Bravos, talk about a big old watcher looking down on everything, roaring uh, and things like that. Yeah, so it, the idea that there are, is a whole bridge of eyes, of course it makes you think of a thousand eyes in one, which not only evokes Bran, but Blood Raven, And this is present throughout all of Arya's chapters. The other thing is that Arya, too, is used as a watcher by the Faceless Men. If you recall, in her earlier chapters, she's spying on people and reporting back to the Kindly Man. That's how she gets her assassination mission uh, for the cheating insurance salesman. So it's also implied when Arya's Blind Beth, we talked before about Arya warging cats, so I think that there's a ton of, of implications that people are watching, you know, not only through obvious watchtowers, but also using other people's eyes to watch as well. Yeah, it started 
didn't it start, Clint, with the uh, that initial one with the tree that watched her as she runs through her wolf tree? And you cited that moment. That's a that's a good catch to fit in all this. It's probably the uh, the seminal example here. Yeah, uh, and I think that it is a way that George is underlining how interconnected everything is, mm. um, and how even at even with this you know, bridge. I mean, it's a, it's notable that it is a bridge of eyes, bridge <laughs> so being <cool. laughs> a way, a way to, you know, to go from one space to another, um, that you have to be, that you're essentially being watched the entire time on this bridge. Um, and that connects really very closely, I think, to what we were talking about earlier with, as Mary points out, uh, Blood Ravens, Thousand Eyes and One, and what we were talking about earlier is this sort of like, being able to watch somebody when you're entering into that space, that that magical space, mm-hmm. like a Bravos or like if you're warging. And so are we going to play the quote again? We don't sure. have to. Let's do it. Her true name was Mercedine, but Mercy was all anyone ever called her. Except in dreams. She took a breath to quiet the howling in her heart, trying to remember more of what she dreamt, but most of it had gone already. There had been blood in it, though, and a full moon overhead, and a tree that watched her as she ran. And so, yeah, I mean, if Bran is watching her as she's warging, I mean, it's just another way of her acknowledging, or or at least the story acknowledging, that she is being watched and is also watching at the same time. And that's so neat because it kind of is like keeps her on her toes. She's she has to stay in her identity. And Mm -hmm. if she slips for a minute, there's someone's going to watch and notice whether it's the bridge, whether it's Dana, you know, there's always someone that could notice. Or Uh, no one. I'm sorry. Or no one. Or no one. Hey. I get it. Hey. hey. So, and and this is all very juxtaposed with the mist, the fog, also present in a lot of these chapters around this point. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the opposite, right? It's the, gives you the opposite idea. Like it's hard to, to watch someone in the fog. But if you have supernatural means and if we're looking at it from a more metaphorical perspective, it still fits very well and it, it sort of conceals who's watching you. And right. Mary, also, it gives you this... It adds to that liminal feel, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. And that's why I feel like there's a really big parallel between this chapter and Tyrion's chapter in A Dance with Dragons at the Bridge of the Dream. Mm. And there's actually a ton of themes that kind of work in tandem. One, you have the mist atmospherics, but you also have rivers and water, right? Because the shy maid is uh, also literally ferrying people like you might imagine Charon ferrying people across the river Styx. And, and you know, obviously Charon is the famous guide through the afterlife in mythology. And the other thing I want to point out is the shy maid is an interesting play on who Arya is is playing as Mercy, right? She's not quite a shy maid, but there's a lot of playing with that kind of identity for Arya and then, of course, the character she's playing here. And the other thing that's interesting is you get this backward motion in time, this weird timey-wimey stuff that happens at the Bridge of the Dream. Yeah. And if you remember, 
as they pass under the Bridge of Dream, it's at that moment that Tyrion reveals that he knows who young Griff is, or at least mm. who, that he knows who young Griff is pretending to be. Um, and then after that reveal, through all of this mist and river, uh, they pass under the Bridge of the dream again. It's hmm. inconceivable. And it's this example of the displacement of time and space that's associated with fog and the, the dull perception that comes with it. And I, I just think that the parallels thematically between those chapters are very, very strong. Well said. Yeah, that's really, really good. Um, <laughs> and you you also cited this this line the mists seemed to part before her and close up again as she passed. The cobblestones were wet and slick under her feet. She heard a cat yowl plaintively. Bravos was a good city for cats, and they roamed everywhere, especially at night. In the fog, all cats are gray, Mercy thought. In the fog, all men are killers. So in the past, I've been somewhat aggressive about not repeating quotes in an episode. But because we have this audio production, I have the exact opposite <laughs> attitude. I'm like, no, let's Absolutely. play it again. <laughs> Nina writes also, there's some historical backdrop here. There's also just bravos and fog. This is well established as part of the world building. Bravos was called the secret city. Literally, for more than a century, people didn't know where it was. <laughs> so the whole darn place was concealed in fog within fog, like fog on the streets, but fog on the whole world map, uh, in a manner of speaking, just as the fog concealed it from the people that wanted to do it the most harm. That would be the Valyrians. Well, that's very fitting, too, with what you just mentioned, Mary, because as you're going down around the area of the Bridge of Dream, if you're going down the former cities of the Roinar, all these ruins, all this death, all this, I almost say marching, but boating through the past, is, <laughs> this is damage done by that same party. This was Dragonlord destruction. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, it is really amazing how you can draw lines between all these points and then wipe out all those lines and then draw a whole new set of lines with different connections and just start a whole different discussion, but with some of the same elements, but from a completely different angle. Really cool. And, and it's significant too, perhaps, that it's the foggiest day she's ever seen. That seems to matter. I don't know what, yeah. what to make of that. Do you guys have any takes on that? Just George is just sort of doubling down on the the extreme extremeness of the of the imagery. The other thing that I like about it is that even though this is the thickest fog she's ever seen, we hear that the mist parted before her. Mm. So unlike Tyrion at the Bridge of the Dream, who's sort of taken in by all the fog, Arya is somehow mm. able to control it and operate within it, which is very interesting if you think about how it relates to her magical power and maybe the magical power that was wielded at the founding of Bravos. Mm. Yeah. Part of that quote we uh, played was, in the fog, all men are killers. And, well, very much early on in this book, there's a lot of battles. We know that. There's uh, the Battle of Blood, the Battle of Ice, the Battle of Fire, the Battle of Mud. Whatever's going to happen at the wall with John's assassination might be something like a battle or a skirmish or some sort of brouhaha of some kind. Uh, here, it's not a battle, but there is trickery 
And pretty much all those other battles involve some sort of trick. And so that, at least, is a thematic connection we have at the, you know, the Stannis is probably going to trick them into the ice lake, followed by a trick to take Winterfell. We've got Kraken summoning and blood, followed by question mark to take Old Town. We've got mud and backstabbing outside Storm's End. We've got guile, quote, unquote, to take Storm's End. We've got the Trojan fleet taking uh, Slaver's Bay. We've got the Dragonhorn, which who knows what that's going to do. There's probably some other ones. Uh, there's definitely other ones from prior in the books. And mm-hmm. there's probably some that we haven't seen coming. So it is as luring an enemy away under false pretenses to make, to make it really easy to kill them. <laughs> that's the similarity. You get them in a position where they can't really fight back. They're not ready to fight back. They don't even see it coming. So that's really cool. Uh, and Mary, I see you've got a couple of examples that uh, fit right in here pretty well. Yeah, I mean, in, in there, this is a pretty broad category. You could argue that the the Red Wedding might apply, but yeah. the ones that seem most parallel to Arya's assassination of Raff here, um, one is from Fire and Blood. That's the Battle of the Twins during the Dance of the Dragons. Um, and if you remember, this is a retributive assassination for blood and cheese. And what happens is there's two brothers that are twin brothers that are members of the Kingsguard. And so the Greens have one of the brothers on their side and the Blacks have the other brother on on their side. And so the Greens send, it's Eric and Arik, which (laughs) you can barely (laughs) tell the difference between those two names. So... (laughs) The, the Greens send uh, one twin to Dragonstone with the goal of assassinating someone, and it's subterfuge. The goal is that for him to gain admittance to Dragonstone on the premise that he looks like the other guy. They're exactly the same. Uh, and so that's a fun parallel here because, you know, you also have Mercy, who's playing a sibling, uh, mm-hmm. possibly, in this chapter. Yeah. Um, it's the same kind of motivation. It's the same justice-given motivation. And it's also reminiscent of Lady Stoneheart's method of fray-killing that we mm-hmm. get in A Storm of Swords. She offers a ransom as a false pretense, and then she, you know, hangs the fray who falls for the trap. True enough. They're really good examples. And uh, the Red Wedding is really good, too, because you already witnessed that. So that's um, particularly... Uh, relevant in that sense for her personally. I love the example of Eric and Arik. I think that's uh, also very fitting in terms of pitting siblings against each other. Something that's a big theme in A Song of Ice and Fire, and we hope it goes the opposite way for the Stark kids. Not, not that Arya and Sansa are likely to be enemies, but they aren't exactly tight, and maybe they will be uh, later. Kind of the opposite of this. We, did, we actually went pretty deep with that topic approaching it from different angles in our episode Serwin of the Mirror Shield, which discusses a lot of different mirror image examples like Eric and Arik, which is that's that's what was happening there. You send a mirror image of, of one to with a shield up to kill a dragon. Well, Eric is the mirror image of Arik. It's a rich parallel. I'm glad you brought that up. Related to that, we have disguise and false identity. Very similar Arya's obviously in disguise here. We got Stannis's men maybe using frozen uniforms. We got Ironborn disguised as fishermen. We got Ironborn disguised as Tairashi in A Feast for Crows. Aegon himself is probably false, so there's that. <laughs> so there's lots of this. False identities are a huge part of A, a Song of Ice and Fire. Now, uh, Mary, you cite the North Remembers plots. That's a good call. 
So what I love about this is it's sort of a nested big thematic example with one that is so specifically relevant to Arya in this play yeah. that I just love it. You, you start about thinking about Wyman Manderley. And look, the, the idea is that obviously Wyman Manderley is engaged in trickery with the phrase going along with a false alliance, which of course this makes sense in the context of retribution for the Red Wedding. But what's so interesting is that in the North Remembers speech itself, Wyman Manderley uses the phrase mummer's farce. You know, mm. the mummer's farce nice. is over. Nice. And Arya is literally in a mummer's farce <laughs> in this episode. The bloody hand, not only is it a play put on by mummers, it's clearly a farce because it's it's funny, it's parodic. So I, I just love how much George has tied that word in, I think, to this specific kind of theme of deception. And of course, the idea that the North remembers is so relevant to Arya, who is here remembering and recovering her identity. But the thing that makes this work so well for me is fake Arya mm. and fake Arya's wedding to Ramsay Snow. So not only do you have these multiple other Plot elements going on around it, Jane Poole playing the role of Arya Stark is a huge part of what's motivating this plot. And in A Dance with Dragons, the Prince of Winterfell, and in The Ghost of Winterfell, Theon literally thinks about how he's playing his own role in a mummer's farce of a wedding. And the absolute money quote from that chapter for me is, Theon, thinking of Jane Poole playing Arya, thinks it was the girl who held him here, Lord Eddard's blood, but the girl was just a mummer's ploy, mm. a lamb in direwolf's skin. Mm. I mean, <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's it, it's so cool. Um, it's just, it's a dueling, you know, Russian nesting doll of <laughs> mummer's farces. <laughs> <laughs> Sansa's friend Jane is in Winterfell playing Arya Stark, while Arya is in Bravos playing Mercy, um, <laughs> who is playing Sansa, and then Sansa is in the Vale pretending not to be Sansa. <laughs> and both of them that's have awesome. names that are references to their mother. <laughs> One half. Yeah, Cat that's Elaine. right. Cat Elaine. Yeah. Cat Elaine. Yeah, that's you know, amazing. And yeah, and then it comes to Lord Eddard's blood. Remember, there's more than one ongoing mummer's ploy in the North because John is also um, a lie about Lord Eddard's blood in some ways. Uh, and Jane is an inversion of Arya's mercy. Instead of a wolf in sheep's clothing, she's a lamb in a direwolf skin. <laughs> um, when Arya's skin-changing Nymeria, she's literally a girl in a direwolf skin. And meanwhile, Arianne is pretty skeptical about this this whole son of Elia and Rhaegar business. Like, is he really? <laughs> I love that analysis. The parallels between those three interlocking pieces that we talked about earlier. But, you know, this idea of pretending to be someone who you're not in order to gain entry into something is something that George goes back to all the time. Ooh, yeah. Again and again, even, I mean, there's uh, Mance Raider pretending to be a, a bard to get into Winterfell twice now. <laughs> twice uh, now, yeah. And so, uh, Alaris so, the Sphinx. You know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a recurring theme, and I, I love how he plays with it. That's really well said. Good example. Yeah, um, 
Another one. Another one was another one comes from. Oh, Brave Danny Flint. Of course, that's a sure. seminal example, yeah. legendary example. Good call. Very good call. <laughs> one character who's not referenced here, but her shadow hangs over everything, like the shadow of leathern wings. That's Daenerys, of course. As we talk about how all these plot lines are merging together, the themes connect them more and more, and we know that the action will eventually bring them more and more together as well. Uh, one of the steps will be to bring them to Westeros. More on that later. But as far as this goes now, I'm very keen to keep my eyes open for anything that might connect Arya to Daenerys in some way or another. And this dates back to way before, like any time before A Dance of Dragons, also before A Feast for Crows, it's been very difficult to understand where Arya's arc was heading as it pertained to all the other arcs. Bran's on this track with the North and the others. Daenerys is mm -hmm. on the track for the throne and dragons and visions. But how does Arya fit into all that? Where is her story going? It's, it was always harder to suss out, um, even if you weren't certain about Daenerys and Jon and all these other ones, which none of us are certain. But Arya's was harder to suss out, I think. And now, but we're, I think we're starting to see clues to where it's going. I pointed out earlier this, this evidence, textual evidence, foreshadowing possibly of her going back to the Red Keep with cat eyes or what have you. I, it occurs to me that attitude-wise, she's got some things in common with Danny, right? Danny's like, I want to protect people. I want to do justice, but I will kill you. <laughs> if you are not, if you're not with that program, right. and that right. is Arya's kind of like that. I mean, and and there's some evidence here. There's double mention of serpents and snakes around here. She she wakes up with her coverlet twisted around her like a snake. Uh, so the serpent boat, the waterman has a serpent boat standing by its upraised tail, and uh, little things mm. like that potentially connecting to the Iron Bank, Bravos being for or against Daenerys, all these larger scale moving pieces that Arya is going to have to be a part of at some point. What do you guys think about Danny slash Arya? I mean, if, obviously, if Danny's ever against the Starks, there's no question what side Arya will be on. But in, uh, setting aside a possibility like that... I have a hard time conceptualizing how they would interact. Yeah. Specifically, because I, I think that we, you know, we have the show as a rough guide, but I think it's likely that her next steps will be towards the Riverland with the idea to go north. Then that makes thematic sense for for Arya, and it would be hard for me to picture how she would interact directly with Danny in that sense. That said, obviously the entire continent of Essos is sort of mobilizing towards war yeah. with <laughs> and on behalf of Danny and. It would not surprise me at all if the Faceless Men got involved in that on behalf of, or even in opposition to Danny, given the fact that they opposed the Valyrian Dragon Riders for a lots of reasons, including the fact that they were slavers, but not necessarily exclusively because they were slavers. So I, I you know, I could, I could see it happening, you know, if she's still aligned with the Faceless Men that she interacts with that. And I could definitely see if we get more Arya chapters, you know, people sort of passing through Bravos on the way to, yeah. you know, to war. She just needs to hear war. about Danny. Like, she doesn't even right. know Danny exists yet. Like, it's hard to, like you say, it's really hard to perceive this without, like, the, the two characters don't even know the other exists. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Things are just getting to such a fever pitch, the, the world events. We have another sort of lead-in to this topic here within 
the chapter kind of on a, on a low-key way, we have the introduction, reintroduction, rather, of the Black Pearl. And we've got a quote. The first Black Pearl was black as a pot of ink, said Dana. She was a pirate queen, fathered by a sea lord's son on a princess from the Summer Isles. A dragon king from Westeros took her for his lover. I would like to see a dragon, Mercy said wistfully. Shout out to Lauren Scipioni, who was playing Dana. I was naming some of the people in the production earlier and uh, hadn't mentioned her yet. Uh, what do you all think is, I think Arya will see a dragon. And uh, another thematic connection, this is right next to Tyrion 1, or at least should be close to Tyrion 1, which he would have seen a dragon for the first time, which we don't know what that reaction is going to be, but it's probably something. And then shortly after that, Victorian and his men are going to see a dragon for the first time. You can see why I mm-hmm. raised this topic, because there's at least it's, George is at least starting the ball rolling. Maybe the ball hasn't rolled very far yet, but it's, it's rolling. <laughs> it's, it's spinning. I'd love to see Danny interact with Bravos more. And I, I think that there's some strong reasons that that might be. Of course, Danny thinks about the house with the red door in Bravos. There is, of course, this connection between, like you mentioned, Bravos's history with the Dragon Lords and how they will play out uh, in terms of their alliance with Danny. We have the fact that a Jockin is looking for the death of dragons, potentially, according to some theories at the Citadel. So the idea of Danny interacting with Bravos, I think, is a real possibility, and particularly interacting with the Faceless Men. And that's what I hear when I look at quotes like this, is when you see I would like to see a dragon, when you see that in Bravos, is that the dragon shadow coming back mm. uh, to find this lost colony? Uh, yeah, and you wonder uh, if that... Uh, I've certainly theorized a lot of times about what might drive Arya away from the Faceless Men, and that could be it. It could be... a Daenerys could be the thing that they split over. If she's like, wait, this woman's like doing all these great things, like freeing slaves, and why did you want to kill her? Like, so what if she has dragons? She's using them to do... That could, like, Arya, Arya might not be down for, for that, being against her. Anyway, that's just one of theory of many. I see that, uh, Clint, you've made some notes on uh, the origins here of the Black Pearl. Yeah, I, I love this quote about the Black Pearl, and specifically the there's a, a line that she's so lovely that lights seem to burn brighter when she passed, <laughs> which is, again, A, like, super hot. That sounds super hot. Yeah. B, that, that's sort of like a another indication of this sort of, like, weird quasi-magical space that we're in, yeah. where if that actually happens, <laughs> imagine if that actually happened. Whoa, yeah. Um, that would be, you know, people would kind of, or it seems along the lines of this sort of dreamlike, dreamlike liminal space that we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. And then I also love the sort of history of the Black Pearl, the first Black Pearl, and the the original Black Pearl who was stolen, of course, by Captain Jack Sparrow. <laughs> um, or... or <laughs> um, no, but no, like... You got it right. It was it, Captain Jack Sparrow. That's, it was Captain Jack, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, it was his ship. Um, no, like... I went back and looked because I wasn't sure who that dragon king was, and it was Aegon the Unworthy. Of, of course, course it was, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> um, but I, I just love that little bit of history that, that George slipped in there. It's good. It's good. That's I very like cool, right? Yeah. And uh, you're right. That is kind of neat, that whole uh, the, but the, the lights burning brighter when she passed, which it's like dragon fire is hotter 
and she's hotter. Oh yeah, and yeah. <laughs> so it just really fits. Good call. And it's a you know it's a black dragon, not a red dragon. I don't know if that matters. Probably doesn't because you couldn't really have a red pearl. I don't know how you do that, but you always look for the colors just in case because you've got the the two factions that are denoted that way. And is it a good example? Like right before she sees Wrath and she almost loses it. She's like, oh, I don't know. No, I don't. Uh, he just looks handsome. Yeah, that's it. I don't recognize him. But right. she, the, she has the same moment three seconds earlier, but with someone that doesn't, she doesn't care about nearly as much, which is this person, the Black Pearl. She is, Arya knows the Black Pearl. Mercy does not. Arya, well, I guess you could see Cat of the Canals knew the Black Pearl. Or I think it was Cat of the Canals. One of her alter egos did. So let's return to the issue of disguise in the uh, logistics behind it. A bare scalp helped the wigs fit better, Isambaro claimed. We have thus learned to associate shaved heads with disguises. Actually, we learned this before that line, uh, thanks to Varys, but Egg as well, concealing his Targaryen hair uh, by cutting it off. And Arya here, and I sure do love to point out how Arya is learning everything Varys knows about disguise and mummery, but more, like, skin-changing, right? So <laughs> let's get a quick take from Nina here on this. This is going another level deeper in the Faceless Man's program of de-identification and her first external roles with the Faceless Man as Cat of the Canals, Blind Beth, and the Ugly Girl. Arya only had to pretend to be one individual, and all she had to remember was their backstories. Now, though... It's much more complicated. She's, her memory, the burden on her memory is much greater because she's Mercadine, the mummer girl, playing these different roles assigned to her. So she's a character within a character, like Mary said earlier, a Russian nesting doll of identities. It's pretty brilliant. It's no good being a mummer if you can't properly convince the audience you're someone else. So this playhouse becomes a neat way of challenging Ari's ability to separate herself from herself. Can you convince the world that you are Mercadine the Mummer Girl? And then as Mercadine the Mummer Girl, can you convince the world you are a different character entirely? Arya is now experiencing two levels of personal disassociation, which the Faceless Men might hope will cure her of her persistent clinging to the identity of Arya Stark. A playhouse is also just good training generally. I mean, actors, you got to master your facial expression. I mean, it's pretty, that part's really straightforward, just general acting and all that. Uh, and it definitely does kind of put us in the space of Varus and Egg. And this is why I put these topics together. Those are both, one's a Targaryen, one's a Targaryen like sympathizer, or I don't know what Varus is exactly what to call him, but you get the point, Blackfire loyalist, something along those lines. We've talked about the Roinar and how that fit in well. Mary brought that up very aptly. And now we can go a little deeper with that. Because it's all over this chapter in very subtle ways. Not only is the Black Pearl a bit of a nod to that, but we have this play from Fario Forel, not the Bloody Hand, but one he wrote before that's mentioned here called The Wrath of the Dragon Lords, which is a reference to the destruction of the Roinar cities, which we just talked about. So yeah, it's all it all connects. I can't even it's just so connected. <laughs> Um, Mary, you have a note here about Fario. Yeah, so I think it's interesting for in the context of a play within a play, I wonder if Fario is meant to be a self-insert by Martin 
just wink, wink, in particularly because you get the line that he has the bloodiest quill in Bravos. Yeah. Um, and so is a stand in for Martin, who has, you know, the bloodiest pen. <laughs> good call. Good call. <laughs> Very good call. Here's a quote. This is what Isambaro quotes this to the rest of the playhouse. <laughs> it shall go ill for any man who fails me. That's a quote from Rose of the Dragon Lords, and Garen did lose, and badly. It did go ill for any man who failed him. And the Every woman. man. Yeah, it went and ill woman. for just and child, all I the Roynish. All of them. Yeah, it went pretty well for the Valyrians, but not, but not really, because the curse of Garen you know, was grayscale, and that was born, apparently, legendarily from this destruction, from Garen being forced to watch this, created the sorrows. So... You can see why I'm like, Targaryen stuff is all over the place here, even though it's just at arm's length or whatever your pick your phrase to describe how it's not quite front and center. And given all the other battles happening everywhere and Danny on the move and all this. So we also talked about in Ariane too, there's these dark warning signs and ominous foreshadowing for the Dornish. Like it, it, Nina put, there's like all these flashing signs when Ariane gets to mm-hmm. to the Rainwood and it's like, go back. This is not for Dornish people. <laughs> you are not wanted here and it's dangerous for you here. And she's like, nope, gotta go. And it's brave of her, but you, you see the signs. It's very ominous. And here we have the same thing. It's the, the Roinar intertwined with the Dornish, like genetically and culturally. And this is very much feeding into that. This the idea that the this is another chapter that's just bringing up the concept that the, the doom of Dorn. If they're if they find themselves in opposition to Daenerys, then yeah, growth of the Dragon Lords indeed. No, that's a great point, and I had not considered. I guess I didn't think too much about why they were talking about the growth of the dragons. Um, I, I, that just kind of flew by me. But it, you're you're absolutely right. Um, it's another connection between Arya and Targaryens generally, or Dragon Lords. Um, yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, that's it connects us back to the gray scale, of course, which we've been talking yep. about, yep. to the fogs and mists of Tyrion's chapter. Yeah, it really is very tight. It's like you, in some novels, some series, you like, you're starved for connections like these, but this is like George describing food. There's just, it's overwhelming. <laughs> You've got so many connections. <laughs> the- did, did we talk about Arya's wolf being Nymeria? Uh, You're right. We didn't even actually mention that. No, we didn't. (laughs) And Nymeria is a parallel to Nymeria because it's like she's a princess that was ejected from her homeland only to rise Mm -hmm. again with a huge following and dominate. So she goes from a river and it's the Riverlands. Like it's (laughs) it's like where she's from, the Roinar, where there's like, that's the Riverlands of Essos. (laughs) So yeah, it just, ah, yeah, it really is a buffet of parallels and connections and awesomeness. Just uh, fist-pumping greatness. George, you rock. But, of course, that's just a play made mention of on the side. The the Fario Pharrell wrote The Bloody Hand, which, of course, is also nicely wordplay-filled title. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. about Tyrion, focused on his time as hand. It appears to depict Robert's death, Joff's ascent, and a few other events. Like I said at the beginning, we don't actually know how it ends because, you know, mercy runs off. But let's run through a few basics here. The Bloody Hand is Tyrion. It's played by Bobineau. Um, In our audio production, that's Michael Clarfeld, as in the guy doing the maps in our video intro. He's multi-talented. Nice. Yeah. 
Nice. The the Fat King is almost certainly Robert Baratheon. We don't hear lines from that character. The Boy King is almost certainly Joffrey. Now, here's a little slight confusion. The boar, as in the boar that kills Robert, is played by someone called Big Briscoe. Now, I don't think this is the same Briscoe that she has spent so much time with, but I'm not 100% sure of that because that guy walks with a cane. And this Briscoe yeah. is acting and painting signs over doors, which is, that's he, difficult to do. He just generally has a door. whole nother life than having kids. He's just a very different, yeah. I mean, I have to think that Briscoe is just a, you know, a common name. Just There's multiple names for lots of characters. Yeah. Um, the Queen has to be Cersei, I would think, and it's hilarious that it's Lady Stork. If you've seen the TV show, <laughs> we actually see this character in, in here. We barely see her at all in this version, which is, that's too bad, but it still does the, does the job. And of course, Arya is, as Mary pointed to, or was it Clint? One of y'all pointed out that it's almost certain Sansa, not a mashup of Sansa and Shay. So, which makes more sense given all the identity stuff and the meta, the nesting doll business. So, yeah, the, the other reason I don't think it's Shay to put this out there is Shay is supposed to be older. She's supposed to be like 18. Ah, yes, you're right. You're right. Um, uh, um, so, I mean, why would you take Arya to play Shay? I mean, so to me, that implies that it's probably Sansa. But it could obviously be, it could be a mashup. I, I, mean, I feel like there has to be like a little element of Shay just because there is the, the part about, I'm going to be raped and murdered. Sure. And oh, uh, like Shay yeah, would, would have, it would have been brought up yeah. like Tyrion, right. he murdered right. his father and his lover, his woman. And so, yeah, they mashed that up. As, okay, as good makes point. sense. That I think been, that's the only yeah. real element there is that murder. Good point. The murder is, is a good clue. Yeah. And they could have, that, that's absolutely a great point. And so Fario Pharrell just wanted to make it bloodier. <laughs> you know? Yep. Much like George R. Martin. Yep. Got to right. add that sensation to it. It notes that the bloody hand opens in a lich yard, um, which is a, a, a graveyard, basically. It's, that is a very meta joke from George, I think, because the very first chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire opens amongst some dead people. Um, so it, it, that's I, I, I saw that and I was like, oh, <laughs> George loves referencing himself. It it's great. <laughs> We've talked about what she's learned at Learned Here. But there's also the faceless man side of this. Like, what do they know? They, they expect her to learn these basic things, but do they know about the bloody hand, right? Like, do they know that this play, they're holding Westeros plays there? Is this part of her testing? Like, they're, they're, they're gonna, she's going to see things from her own past and is going to be tempted to do something about it? Or were they perhaps, they didn't know she'd run into Raph the Sweetling, probably. But maybe they saw this as a, uh, as a particular bump in the road or something that she would have to be wary of. And unfortunately, it went even more sideways because of the presence of these people that they maybe couldn't predict. So it's just worth considering how much they know about this. Do they, just, do they send all their trainees to, the, to Isambaro? Like, how deep in the faceless man is Isambaro himself? Like, how much does he know? Probably not a lot, but he probably knows mm -hmm. a little bit. Like, I'm very much wondering <laughs> about these things. And it's one of these things we don't have answers for. It's kind of, I just throw this out there for you all to consider on your own and wonder about. Yeah, I just always think an interesting part about Bravos is, you know, the, there's the idea that the faceless men can't kill someone who, that they know who it is, right? And so that people have this incentive to work for and, and serve the faceless men. And so I think it's, I think it's interesting 
that isn't borrow in the playhouse, perhaps they owe some debt to the faceless men. Um, so I like that idea Ooh. that there is some potentially deeper relationship going on there. Yeah, you really wonder about that. That's just, I continuously refer to them like a mafia because they have these sort of deals with local businesses that are <laughs> under the table that might involve the threat of violence. They certainly are. I mean, everyone's intimidated by them, even if the violence is implied or not. So you definitely just, if the Don asks you for a favor, you do it, right? It's that kind of thing. It's not like uh, you just hope he treats you well, hope he gives you money for your service, but you definitely don't say no to him. <laughs> and the God of many faces is the Don here in this sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> Joe Buckley writes another, there's a great point here that another thing about this play that's really genius is it's, is it's way to bring back these other events that are still really important, even though they happened so long ago, Joffrey and Robert and, and Ned, uh, all that stuff is still in play. We're still dealing with that fallout, even though so we're many items removed from it, it's still super important. And that brings us back to, again, back to Varus. Yeah, that's right. It's um, in Arya 3, at Game of Thrones, she overhears Varys and Illyrio, and she reports what she hears back to Ned. And, and if you remember, she doesn't know. She doesn't know who they are. She just hears someone with a some, with a liquid accent of the free cities and you hear them talking about the Lannister attempt on Rand's life uh, and later we learn of course that this is Vars in Illyrio and they actually use the word mummer's farce then and the the direct quote is the fools tried to kill his son and what's worse they made a mummer's farce of it oh. I warn you the lion and the wolf will soon be at each other's throats whether we will it or not too soon, too soon. And then when Arya goes back to Ned, he doesn't believe her, mm. of course, because yeah. she's just a young girl. And Ar Ned thinks that they're literally just mummers. And it's it's so interesting the way that all of these little pieces link back up to sort of themes that we've heard from the beginning of the book. Nice. Yeah. And, yeah. and Clint, there's a really big one here too, right? The, one of the <laughs> most one of the most important themes of the entire series, right? Right. It goes back to Varys's riddle, where Varys says that power resides where men believe it resides. And Tyrion responds, so power is just a trick? And Varys says, I, a mummer's farce. Mm -hmm. uh, or power is a mummer's trick, yes. Um, he doesn't say a mummer's farce. He says, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a mummer's trick. Sim um, same enough. Similar enough, yeah. Some mm -hmm. Similar enough. Yeah, um, and that idea of um, the riddle and power residing where men believe it resides and power being a shadow on the wall, that is a theme that just keeps coming up, keeps coming up, and it's hard, it's hard to not bring it up, especially when you're talking about power <laughs> yeah, right. and mummering. <laughs> and yeah. he is all over this chapter without being all over this chapter. Even right. uh, someone even pointed out even the color of Arya's cloak reminds us of Varys. Uh, it's a mummer's cloak yeah. and it's purple, which we've been noticing Varys' association with lilac since like chapter three or four of A Game of Thrones <laughs> as, an, as right. a way to associate him with Viserys and Viserys' lilac eyes. So there you go. <laughs> and now, Mary, you noticed this whole theme, not only of mummer's farces, but specifically with trials and specifically Tyrion, not just trials, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So in Cat 7, A Game of Thrones, Cat refers to Tyrion's impending trial in the Vale as a mummer's farce. And then in Tyrion 9, A Storm of Swords, when Tyrion is uh, on trial for murdering Joff, he thinks of it as a mummer's farce. And of course, that's quite literally what it becomes in Braavos. This is a mummer's farce about Tyrion um, murdering Joff. And so it's so interesting to me because, of course, the story of Joffrey's murder, the story of everything in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's decidedly not a farce, right? (laughs) Uh, um, Right. And so it links back to this idea that A Song of Ice and Fire is a story about the way we tell stories. And that's what you know, the bloody hand brings into high relief. And it's particularly interesting how much that's related to justice. That's why it's interesting it comes up in the context of trials and Tyrion's trial. So, you know, the idea that the stories we tell become reality is so interesting. And I think that's part of, we're having this debate about, is it Shea? Is it Sansa? Well, maybe they don't know. And they're just filling in what's missing. They're they're improvising with the facts. Great point. And, yeah. Yeah. So that's what we do. That's what we do with stories. That's that's the the meta that George is kind of throwing at us here with this uh with this play. That is really well said. Yeah. And it's it's one of the reasons you guys were perfect for this episode is because so much of it is is around a tr- these trials, right? And that's of course uh, obviously a legal uh, falls under the legal umbrella pretty squarely. And uh, of course plenty of other reasons why we're happy to have you here today. And uh, related to that as well, we have the notion that Tyrion's being blamed for kinslaying that he didn't do, which is mm-hmm. clearly what's going on with Danny about to, uh, or is going to happen. Like Arianne's already thinking how sh- she's responsible for Viserys's death, even though she's not. Um, and she might, might end up blaming him for Quentin, also not her fault, but something that brings Danny and Tyrion together, being blamed for murders that you didn't get blamed for, but there's absolutely no chance to convince the world otherwise. Like, this is, this cat's out of the bag, to use a phrase that seems to fit pretty well here. There is no chance Tyrion convinces the world he didn't kill Joffrey. I think that's done. Like, he's probably never going to bother. He's like, yeah, no, that's, that's it. He's, he's even telling people. Like, he told, uh, he's, he's already out there telling people he did it. Because he's like, well, that's what the world thinks. So yeah, I killed my, I killed my, my nephew. <laughs> it's just like, may as well lean into right. it. That's what everybody believes. Yeah, and this note that Mary mentioned about how A Song of Ice and Fire is, is about how people tell stories. It's a story about telling stories. I, I mean, one, it's sort of borne out by the play being, it's a play about the story in the story. So it's a story within a story within a story. But like my favorite, I don't know if, George is referencing this, but it's it's a trope that goes back to to Hamlet, of course. Mm. Um, and my favorite um, riff on Hamlet, which is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is a story about how Hamlet tells a story <laughs> to unrelated characters who are just side characters who are only there because of the story, and and it's it's this sort of Russian nesting doll, to use Mary's phrase, about stories. And I mean, I, I think it, it is possible or probably likely that George is referencing um, Shakespeare on some level with this play within play because um, the play is at the gate is, is what the, the place is called. Yeah. The, the theater is called the gate. 
which is pretty close to the globe, which is where oh, yeah. um, Shakespeare put on his plays. So I, I think it's a reference, and I love the reference, and it's, it's delightful. Right on. I wanted to put a little bit of a bow on, on this uh, idea of stories about how we tell stories and how it relates to identity, which is this idea of Tyrion becoming the villain that they wish everybody thinks he is, right? Is that the stories we tell can manifest our identity. Sure, mercy is a mask, but Arya takes components of that onto herself. And so even when our identity is a performance, even when it's artifice, that still shapes who we are. And we're simultaneously seeing, you know, throughout this chapter, both the private mind of Arya as the person playing a role, as well as the outward face that she puts on. So I think there is this more elaborate, I think pretty unsubtle metaphor about identity itself being a mummer's performance. Um, And I think that's really important as a layer on this particular chapter, because like I've been saying, there's this Russian nesting doll. It's Aria playing a role and then playing another role. And that can limit the the opportunities we have, right? Are we playing the role that we're given? Like Raph, are we reading the lines in the script that someone else has set up for us? Or do we have our, our own identity and our own agency? Well said, very well said. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's a several of you out there noticed some parallels to Richard III, uh, Shakespeare's Richard III. And so I'll, I'll read you a little bit here that Nina wrote. Not only is the main character the brother of a royal accused and in the universe found guilty of murdering his nephew, and not only does the main character suffer from a disability which is used in the play to reflect the character's villainy, Richard III is shown to be a hunchback, but George R. R. Martin seems to be creating the same sort of historical revisionism in his play that Shakespeare used with Richard III. Richard III is mm-hmm. not a historically accurate play, <laughs> nor was it written to be. <laughs> He's not like mistaken. Shakespeare just changed things because, you know, he was writing it for his audience. He wanted to make it more interesting in certain ways because history doesn't conform to the notions of entertainment. It just is, right? The play makes Richard as a forthright villain who unrepentantly and unscrupulously schemes for his own advancement, just trying to rise to the top, which is... Mm-hmm. Very similar to how George originally conceived Game of Thrones to be, yet it would be Jamie doing that, blaming it on Tyrion. That was, of course, nothing like that ended up happening. But do you still see elements of that being held onto where people blame Tyrion for things, or, or Tyrion just gets blamed for things, whether it's everyone or a specific person <laughs> blaming him? So, really strong connections there. George is well versed in Shakespeare. So, I appreciate, like I said at the beginning, I'm not super well versed in this stuff. So, very you know, glad Nina and a lot of you out there amongst our commenting uh, group uh, caught this as well. So I'm glad to point that out. Could you say then that Jamie has a bloody hand? No! <laughs> mm. It's a bloody golden hand. Just the one. <laughs> Just the one, yeah. <laughs> and so this brings us to yet another tie-in with Daenerys. We have this idea of changing things or spicing them up a little bit to please the audience. Same thing happens in Daznak's pit. You got they they came to see blood, right? And the bloodiest pen in Bravos. Well, it's not real blood here, but it's still that they, they they come to see scandal and murder and and stuff like that. They come to see powerful people brought low, Schadenfreude, things like that. 
And yeah, Daznax Pit, that's what they were there for. They were there to see blood and violence and cheer for it. And this is similar in that sense. I think it is. I think it's very similar to that. I also think it ties into kind of what Mary was talking about earlier with Tyrion's trial, where he gave that speech about saying he wishes he was the villain you thought I was. And it's sort of an inversion of that, where he's saying, I I didn't please the pit. And so here I am being railroaded in a trial. And that, of course, is due to Tyrion's spectacular inability to learn the lesson of Varys's riddle, (laughs) which is that you have that power resides where men believe it resides, that you have to pay attention to the trappings of power or you will lose it. So it's just another, I think, this idea that you have to please the pit is just an echo of Varys's riddle in that way. Yeah, it's like the pit is the same as the gallery or the audience. It's exactly. all the same. And the gallery yep. is what you would describe the people watching the trial. And that's why you very aptly referred to the quotes of it's, it's a mummer's farce. Because yeah, it is. He's out there saying, look, y'all, this is my life we're talking about. But to you, this is just a spectacle. And you're like rooting for it to play out in the way that you want it to play out, not in the way that justice needs to play out. So yeah, it is, it's a super on point. It also tells us what Bravos and other parts of Essos see Westeros like, the way they view it. And we look like, I really wonder what Harry Swift thinks of this play. Like, he's like, yeah, it's, <laughs> that's really how it was. You know, that's pretty much what happened. An old guard, this old guard guy, right? Who maybe isn't able to catch a lot of the play because he's standing guard, but he could hear it. Like, he's been around for a while. He, he's not like Raph the Sweetling. I don't know that he's a good dude, but at least he said, you're gross for chasing after a child. So maybe he's not the worst guy ever. Yeah, I never uh, really thought about that, about what Swift and Old Guard thought about this play. This play. Right? It's very yeah. interesting. Uh, you know, yeah. I would love just like five seconds in Old Guard's head to be like, this play <laughs> is weird. You know, or like, <laughs> or like, yeah. yep, that's what happened, you know, or something like that. Uh, like Dana is like, oh, the Westerosi are savages. Like, oh, he's just so old. He's 30. You know, like, <laughs> like that part doesn't, that's that's not cultural. That's just... Yeah, the 30-year-old line, every time I read it, I'm like, that's a slap in the face to all the readers. <laughs> hey, like, hey, he might be 30. I'm, I'm way older than that. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> Perception is a big part of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's, of course, well-explained and well-made part of the story, given the huge variety of POVs and locations the story takes place in. Not just POVs, but stuff like this. Like, we're not in Old Guard's head. We're not in Harry Swift's head. We're not in Dana's head, but we still get some idea of how they feel. So one of my favorite quotes from this chapter is uh, Arya thinks about how her favorite part in any of the plays she's seen is, I think it's a seagull shitting on the Titan's head. Um, (laughs) And... It speaks, and Arya thinks it's only in Bravos that you could do that. It's only in Bravos that you, oh, sorry, it's the Sea Lord's head. Yeah. That's what I meant. And it's only in Bravos that you would be able to mock political leaders. And we know you can't do that in Westeros, right? People's tongues come out all the time. Uh, we hear about that at the, the very beginning of the Duncan Egg novellas. Um, yeah. With uh, the you know, There's huge consequences mm. for, for a puppeteer. And Tyrion, uh, also, there's consequences um, for some bards that displeased Tyrion. And so I do wonder if Horace Swift 
I wonder if they're thinking about the level of, and to bring a lawyerly twist to it, the level of freedom of speech that uh, Bravo C Culture has in comparison to Westeros. I, I, that's a really good call there, too, because not only is it acceptable, but it's mentioned that the Sea Lord might laugh, too. He might laugh along right. with the crowd, right. not just laugh, be la- you know, not just handle being laughed at. That's very cool. Yeah, it really is different. It's, it is another example of how Bravos is not just cool, but an exception, and it shows why George loves it. But maybe the biggest question about how reactions to this is what would Tyrion think of this play? Because I could see it going either way. I could see him be going, yep, well, that's, I, this is what I expect. Or I could see him getting infuriated just seeing this at this level. Like it's, it's one thing to accept that people think this way. It's another to see himself portrayed this way and see just everybody laughing at it. I, don't, I, I really don't know. I'm not sure. I think that he would probably choke it down. I think that he would, in his mind, he would be one of those like annoying internet commenters who is like, actually, that's not historically accurate because that happened at a different time. But it, like outwardly, he would just fume. Because I mean, one thing that we know about Tyrion is that he's used to being made fun of yeah. his entire life. Crippled bastards and broken things is his go-to kind of idea uh, as to how to get through it is to you know armor yourself in those insults Great so he point. would probably armor armor himself in this insult so he might laugh along too be like yeah this is funny yeah you're right this is great right. that was me yeah look uh. <laughs> right he could be like right. the sea lord getting checked. i think some of it would genuinely make him laugh too okay yeah like oh, some yeah, of I it agree. just isn't even at his expense like i think some of it he would appreciate there's probably a lot of of uh, wittiness and clever writing that I think he could appreciate. But, but I, think, I think some of it would be like a punch in the gut. Yeah, the Santa right. Shea stuff. Mm-hmm. That part, he would not... That would, He wouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> yeah, not at all. But you will, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Murder. It's so funny. <laughs> Something else that's been barely mentioned, this is a topic that's kind of off the radar here, is things that are written out of the of the narrative because of mercy or because they've already been thought of. You brought this up earlier, Mary and Clint, that uh, using Ned as an example, there's things that just Ned doesn't think about. And it's just the way George wrote it. It's maybe uh, his stubborn subconscious combined with the way George wants to tell the story. And uh, some of that's present here. But it's not just present here in this chapter. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. The phrase Iron Bank does not appear in Arya's chapters at all. Not once. Really? Not once. Interesting. Right? (laughs) This is the closest thing we get to a mention of the Iron Bank in any of her chapters at all. Besides the Westerosi envoy, there would be key holders in the crowd this evening and famous courtesans as well. The only place key holder is defined is in the world of ice and fire. It's the only place you can learn what that phrase means. Uh, Maybe also in fire and blood. So... A casual reader is not going to probably know what that means. They just recognize from context that it's a very powerful person. They don't necessarily know that it's someone from the Iron Bank. And that does seem like a lot of key holders, though. Five, doesn't it? Yeah, it seems like a lot. And Mary, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there only like 23 keys? I'm bad at numbers. There's not many. I think that's that's right. Yeah, it's either 23, might be 17. It's some small number in that range. Yeah. Um, So that seems like a, a pretty packed house in terms of like power players at this particular show. I mean, you know, you have the Westerosi envoy and maybe that's why. And it's also opening night. 
True. So, and true. by the way, 23 founders, 16 men and seven women. Oh, nice. Good call. 23. So you remembered it. There you <laughs> go. And of course, this one key holder in particular is mentioned as being hugely overweight, which was a kind of a recurring theme that George liked to show, especially for some of these like really uh, long-term families that have been ultra-wealthy for uh, that, uh, that whole time, like hundreds or thousands of years of being wealthy. Like they don't even remember, there's not even family history of them not being rich. And so sometimes this is like the Manderleys, for example. They're, they, they were rich before they even moved to... White Harbor and got richer. And of course, he's he comes to mind when you think of someone who's just hugely overweight. And that is often a way to show greed. It's not always it's not always so simple as Wyman Manderley is shown. He is maybe a little greedy, but he's also a decent guy about a lot of things. Uh, as we pointed out earlier, Arya herself is something of a key holder, although we don't know what the key is for. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. here we are again with another thing that we want to think about. Like, is this... We're tempted with connections between the Iron Bank and the House of Black and White. There's nothing concrete connecting them, but let alone iron, but there's a lot of vague connections. And I mean a lot. And of course, what's fitting that a city of fog has all this concealed. Meanwhile... While Iron Bank isn't mentioned in Arya's chapters, Tycho Nestoris and his hat that must have three brims are traipsing <laughs> all over the north, loaning gold to Stannis and the Wall. So it's not like the Iron Bank's hidden. It's just they're in all the POVs but the one that's located in their home city, which is, that says a lot. Does this absence say anything to you, Mary? Yeah, I mean, I I really think that the Iron Bank and the Faceless Men are in league with each other yeah. because it just seems like imagine if you were trying to make wise investments what would you want you would want eyes strategically placed all over the story in right. order to get as much intel as you could and that's exactly how they accomplish their murders right so this idea of political and economic power reinforcing each other to me that is, that's something that really intrigues me about Bravos and their entire backstory. But in terms of how it relates to the Iron Bank's sort of absence from Arya's chapters, I mean, I think it's a great point that just like Ned, this is something that we don't get in Arya's POV yeah. because George is kind of deliberately trying to hide the ball on it. It's it's really interesting. And I think that the Iron Bank and, and Bravos, like you said, they're in almost every other POV. They're positioned to be really important players in the Winds of Winter. Yes. The financing behind the war. We've had war, 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 war. Behind uh, war is always financiers. There's always people that want to benefit or not lose from these wars. And the Iron Bank has probably got its finger or a whole hand, as, Ari, as <laughs> Tyrion would say about Illyrio, in some of these businesses that stand to gain or lose massively based on which side wins or doesn't. And also, on top of that, I mean, we have Arya thinking about how she's like, yeah, she's found rooms with like all the, the clothing and all this other stuff. But she's like, there must be a room with all the money because she's taking all the money off of everybody and taking money out of the fountain and taking money and they're accepting huge sums for murders. And there's no sign of that money. <laughs> so yeah, mm, <laughs> it's like Iron fair. Bank. Yeah, that's probably where it is. <laughs> and there's also tunnels under there, under the Faceless Man thing, and the Iron Bank started in tunnels. It's like, um, yeah. <laughs> in Fire and Blood, I think George is also really explicit 
about the financial connection mm-hmm. between the Iron Bank and the uh, the West Soros regime. And the example of that is that we know that the supposed backdoor trade of the stolen dragon <laughs> yeah. leads to uh, right. leads to a loan that helps to finance the infrastructure mm-hmm. in King's Landing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, so that's really interesting. You know, it's this interplay is what helped build Westeros. And yeah, and, and of course, the other example in Fire and Blood, when the Lysine Spring was happening and the bankers, uh, this new bank is ascending, two very suspicious and extremely smooth deaths happened at the same time. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, hmm, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Yes, indeed. Who could have known? Let's ask Jack and Hagar, or not, because mm-hmm. uh, we don't want him to think we know. Which makes this whole thing very amusing, right? Like, we know at the end of the epilogue, Dance of Dragons, Harry Swift was told that he'd be making this trip, and he whined about it at the time. Although right now, like, what is he... I suppose he's probably rethinking that whining now that he's hanging out with the Black Pearl and, you know, partying in Bravo. He's like, actually, this is this trip worked out pretty well. Yeah, until his Lo- buddy dies, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Love, love me a business trip, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I miss them after in COVID. Like, nobody does them. He's, he's definitely putting a lot on the expense account here. Like, mm-hmm. uh, nor, nor, most people can't expense trips to the top courtesan in the world, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, being a high noble, being the master of coin has its privileges, as Littlefinger will tell you. <laughs> yeah, but he's going to pay it back with interest to the Iron Bank, right? I would think so, yeah. So what are they doing, though? Are they just giving him the runaround, just delaying him? Like, they know they're not going to give him any money. So, like, what's mm-hmm. happening here? They didn't. They mm-hmm. clearly didn't just flat out say no. I mean, delay, 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 delay prevaricate. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the only thing I could think of. But I'm wondering if there's something else. But it's probably that. I could uh, secretly planning to murder them. Maybe. Ooh, maybe. I mean, I could see them hedging their bets a little bit. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe by giving them a little bit of money, and, or you know, like un, maybe a, not so much money, but enough so that they're not suspicious that they're not funding Stannis or somebody yeah, else, okay. you know, like, and, you know, it's just a, it's like a good investment on in some way. I mean, you know, you can think about uh, modern military superpowers who fund both sides of various conflicts just yep. as a way of like saying like, oh, we're just, just in case. We'll be on the winning side wins. one way or the other. Yeah. 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 We've seen that. We see that in Song of Ice and Fire, like the high towers took both sides in the War of Five Kings. Yep. Tons of examples. Yeah. Although I don't know if I would kill Harry Swift if I were them, because this guy's so incompetent, you kind of want to leave him in charge, right? Like, nah, just right. let this, let this guy keep running things. Him and Cersei and all that clown show. <laughs> let him let him ruin things. Let our guy Stannis do his thing. But yeah, hmm. which is, by the way, a clue though. That's a clue about the timeline of this chapter. It's potentially an argument against my theory that Mercy will be the first chapter, which is that this chapter implies Cersei's trial has already happened. Uh, here, yeah, is, here is the quote that gives us that clue. How long do you think we'll be here? Longer than you'd like, the old man replied. If he goes back without the gold, the queen will have his head. Besides, I've seen that wife of his. That's Yoke Boy and Yogi, a.k.a. Through the Moon Door, as Raph the Sweetling there. I don't know what it is, but Yoke Boy playing old guard makes me laugh so much. <laughs> it's good. He does a good old guard there. It's a double whammy. You can see to, in response to this question, we don't get the a full answer, but what the guard is saying is basically right. It's like, if we don't get the gold, the queen will have his head. Uh, he's not going to get the gold, or unless Clint's right that they give him a little bit just to sort of play him off. 
but now he's also double incentivized to stay because if he's not gotten the gold, plus he wants to hang out with the Black Pearl. So, you know, uh, kind of understand that, I guess. So it's like death, Black Pearl. Death, Black... Hmm, that is a tough <laughs> choice. No, that's not a tough choice. Now, so let's move on. Like, Harris is probably going to have a reaction to this. I don't know if it'll amount to much. He might be like, oh, look, they've killed my guard. Someone killed my guard. I'm not safe. You know, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't know if that'll, that kind of complaining will get him anywhere. But it seems not unlikely given he's a complainer. We've already, that's been established. He's a whiny kind of, I deserve, he's sort of like, uh, he's a little bit like uh, Emin Frey, you know, like that guy. Hmm? Waving his paper, like, I'm the blah, blah, blah. I'm the envoy. And it's ironic because in the uh, Dance with Dragons epilogue, Harris Swift complains to Kevin that he needs more guards. Uh, uh, we also joked at the time, clearly it was Kevin who needed more guards and right away. <laughs> but oh well. Yeah. Kevin specifically suggested the mountain's former men. So clearly Ke- uh, Swift took that suggestion because this is Raph the Sweetling here, which is too bad because Jamie was thinking they'd be best used in a manner that is more useful and more likely to get them killed, i.e., sending them up some ladder first to storm some castle. He's like, that's a good way to use the mountain's men. But instead, they got this cushy job. Well, life isn't fair, really, and that goes doubly true for Raph. When uh, Arya first notices Raph, she says, the gods have given me a gift. Plural. Not the many-faced god. She means the old gods here. And I love that little bit because it would have been very easy for her to say, the many-faced God has given me a gift. And she said, no, it's the gods. Nice. Um, and I also love her quick thinking about lying to Dana about whether or not Raph was hot. Um, <laughs> like that was, and I don't know whether Raph is good looking or not. I, I don't think it really matters, but I think that you know her, she had to come up with a reason as to why she picked out this guy. And it's like, oh, he's pretty, right? <laughs> and then later, her internal monologue is talking about the pretty one. She is, mm. and so she's reinforcing her lie in in her own head, just so she doesn't slip out of it accidentally. And I, I think it's really interesting. It's like part of her training. Like she's she's got these right. like instincts and training to ways to to maintain her identity. And that you see that it's kind of like you see the the gears turning there. Yeah, mm-hmm. Good catch. And yeah, the whole thing about God's not God, that is such a great, it's like the, it's like her stitches. It's a great like callback yeah. to who she really is and yep. what she really believes. And it's good luck for Arya, maybe in a sense, like good luck for Lamy, I guess. Uh, terrible luck for Raph. Reminds me a bit mm-hmm. of Tyrion stumbling on Jorah and Selhorius in the, uh, in the uh, brothel. Jorah was drunk and didn't think through his plan. And Tyrion, Tyrion later relentlessly mocks him about that. He's like, you didn't think this through at all, did you? Like, Danny's more likely to cut your head off than mine, blah, blah, blah. And then he, you know, gets punched for that. But because Tyrion also doesn't think things through <laughs> before talking. Right. Right. Uh, Arya only hesitates a few times. She doesn't really think through the consequences. She just thinks there will be, but without specifics. She's just like, but it's just so overwhelming. She's not going to back down. She hesitates very slightly conceal her to make sure she keeps her identity concealed when she realizes she's jumped out out of it for a second there and then when she speaks bravosi to them and they don't respond in kind she's like okay i gotta speak common here that's going even farther but it's a only the briefest of hesitation mm-hmm. and she doesn't really think about it she's like well all right let's do it so we know that from the context well the older guard is not one of the mountains man he says things like well maybe it was different under click game but uh, so he, she, she's got nothing against this guy. 
So if we want to review what happened, let's let's do a little, just for fun here, uh, review the arc of Wrath and Arya. So Arya 6, A Clash of Kings, that's when she's added, or she adds him to her list. As we said at the beginning, it's super slick, super awesome, and it's done thematically well in this chapter because the chapter starts with her dreaming of chasing prey. And then at the end, she catches the prey. <laughs> it's a different prey, but it still uh, works in that sense. And it's the way, if it wasn't clear, the way Arya kills Raph is exactly the way Raph murdered Lamy. Just as Raph lifted his spear casually and drove the point through the boy's soft throat, that's an exact quote, so that, quote, when he pulled the spear loose, blood sprayed out into dark fountain. Here, it's Arya slipped it through his throat beneath the chin, twisted and ripped it back out sideways with a single smooth slash so that fine red rain followed. There's two ways to look at this. One, yeah, it's really amazing as far as revenge, but it also just shows you just how clearly Arya remembers that day. And that's not a great memory to have. So you, she clearly remembers what happened to Lamy. It's burned in her memory in a sense. She may never forget it. This may help her deal with it, that she knows that she's at least done, killed the guy that was responsible for it. But uh, this is part of her forever now. And that's, uh, that's important. Like her trauma, her things she witnessed in the Riverlands is always going to be part of who she is. You know, I, I mentioned before that the idea that she says, you know, uh, I know my line and so do you. And I, I think it's just, it's a perfect, it's a perfect way to bring it back. And it ties back into the, the theme of the whole story. I just, I love it. The other thing that I mentioned before about how much I like th- this in the context of Bravos is it's this, it has this timey, this time warp element to it. Like Arya is going back and reliving this moment, but from the point of view of the person in power. Um, and that's that's so interesting to me. It's, it is kind of therapeutic, I suppose. Um, reliving your trauma is something that therapists have you do. Not not like this, but <laughs> <laughs> this is usually it's like acting it out or talking through it's, it. You know, not like literally going through the <laughs> the effect. It's experimental treatment, one might say. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a very progressive or experimental therapy here. <laughs> Yeah, and Nina also writes that it's a nice parallel to Arya's last kill of the thieving insurance salesman. There, she also used a trick she learned as Cat of the Canals when Red Ruggo taught her to hide a finger knife up her sleeve to teach her to do a quick slice smoothly and without person even knowing they've been cut. And usually you're cutting a purse, not a femoral artery. But even this shows you her blade is sharp. <laughs> her, her motion is smooth. He barely even feels it. It's really quite something. Well, and, and she knows what to do, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's a... I, I mean, I, I don't know where the femoral artery is, you know, like <laughs> same. it's in my leg, it's but I don't know if femur, yeah. <laughs> right. Like, well, I mean, she's, this, she's been trained. Is that yeah. something she learns from the hound? I mean, maybe. who she learns the neck from the hound, mm, uh, the heart. She learned it was the, the heart. heart. Yeah. But maybe the other heart. ones too, well, but she also did all these working another. with bodies, like dead bodies. So she, yeah, sure. She's had a oh, broad, <laughs> thorough experience with bodies. <laughs> and arteries and yeah she's uh she's well prepared and it's also the memory of of Lamy's death and Raph's killing of him is another example of how she's just not gonna stop being Arya she's never gonna forget she's never gonna be no one with memories like this Mm -hmm. uh hanging out in her subconscious or her straight up conscious heck 
we had a section here dedicated to talking about Bravos, but we pretty much covered all the topics within that during. Uh, we spaced it in here and there. But I would like to say one thing, which is that definitely in the future, we will do an episode on just Bravos, a focused episode on Bravos, the city and its history, things like that, because it's uh, something we've bounced in and out of, but it deserves a focused. Yeah, I think you can find a lot more talk about this if you go to our Fire and Blood face, Faceless Men and Iron Bank that's true. Um, episode. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the places we've covered it the most, along with Mercy right. Chapter. Yeah. and We've definitely expanded on topics like the Lysine Spring and some just other various ideas and, and spitballing notions about what the Faceless Men might be doing. And we certainly talked about how incredibly uh, parallel it is to the mines of Valyria. You've got people toiling down in the mines of Valyria, wish, you know, and that gives birth to the Faceless Men. Now you have Arya and perhaps other people who have surrendered everything about themselves, which is similar to slavery, going down in these dark tunnels, my, you know, getting wealth for these unseen masters that might be the Iron Bank. So they become the um, thing that they destroyed. Like they become what they hate. Quite potentially, that that could work amazingly well as a pair, as a theme if George decides to go that way, or has already decided to go that way. Possibly, we we also had an episode on Bravos in cool. general. Well, it was on the first law of Bravos ah, and their connection course. to slavery. Um, it was our fourteenth episode, if I recall correctly. Um, but we went, we touched on a lot of those those issues, and you know, talked about Bravosi government in general and how it how it, we think it might work. Right on. Well, definitely, folks, check that one out, too, yeah. then. There's, uh, you, you all have lots of homework. <laughs> <laughs> Consequences. What is going to happen to Arya as a result of this? Funny to think about the kind of consequences she used to think about. In the first chapter, we, we've referred to her first chapter because of things that have been with her this whole time, like Needle and like her attitude about justice, her uh, stubbornness, her thoughts on Sansa and her stitches, things like that. Mm-hmm. At the end of her first chapter, we have this line, it was Septim Mordain and her mother, meaning they're waiting for her to give her some sort of punishment, which, you know, that amounts <laughs> like a grounding, right? <laughs> so that's actually kind of where I think this is headed. I, I, you know, we are expecting a breakup of Arya and the Faceless Men that might get violent, if not very violent. One theory I have is that she'll poison them all because she's asked to serve them at table a few times, she could actually wipe them all hmm. out. Kind of like what the show gave us for her killing the phrase. She's facing some sort of punishment for disobedience. If we, if we look back what they did to her the last time she killed someone unauthorized, it wasn't much of a punishment. Like you'd think blindness is a pretty serious punishment, but it turns out it wasn't really that. It was blindness earlier and longer. We were already going to blind you. We just did it sooner because of this murder. Mm-hmm. That's really not much of a punishment, but this is a murder organization. So you'd think that a few extra killings here and there might not be something that they're that worried about. They, they're worried about it. And again, I come back to the mafia aspect of all this because it's an unsanctioned killing. And that's exactly how like the mafia puts it. Like you don't kill people unless the mafia gives you permission because they control that aspect of society. They decide who lives and dies. And they use the word sanctioned because it's like sanctify or sanctuary because they have a religious aspect to their leadership. The mafia is very uh, based in ritual and things like that, uh, hierarchy and secrecy, similar to the Faceless Men. 
I see Ashea has a comment. Yeah, what you said, you think that it's possible that Mercy poisons the faceless men yeah. there in Bravo. So would you say you think that means Arya goes to Westeros on her own? Maybe, possibly. yeah. It, so it, my question then is for Mary and Clint, do you think the faceless men send her to Westeros or that she gets there on her own? Uh, I'll start with you, Clint, sure. I think she gets there on her own. Okay, Mary? I don't know why. I'm of two minds, right? And and to me, it depends on whether or not the faceless men know who Arya is. Mm. And I tend to think that they do. Like they're um, trying to like harvest her abilities for somehow, like they know she's a skin changer maybe or... Either that or they, they kind of predict that she is not going to go in line with the training and she's may become a rogue agent. And that sort of works for them. I, I don't know. This is one of those things where I think George R. R. Martin's sort of gardening, leaving opening like mo- multiple possibilities for what's going to happen with her arc. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the idea that like in the show, she escapes and goes back. I think that's very satisfying. And I would tend to agree that that's more likely. But I, I am really curious if the faceless men know who she is if there is a greater plan that she is a part of. That's a really good point. And I wonder about that too. Like, is, are they like not being completely open with what they expect from her? And I think that's very relevant possibility. Uh, we did sort of touch on that as well as the, um, we talked about what do they really know about what they expect from her at Eisenbarros? Do they know about the bloody hand? Do they know that's going to trigger you know, thoughts within her? Is that going to be a test? Things like that. So yeah, we wonder like, what do they really know? What are they? Are they more aware than we think? Or as you point out, or is it the other way? Are they less aware? <laughs> are they? Are they truly in the dark about this? By the way, um, yeah. I just want to bring up that Guilty Undertaker says the kindly man calls her Arya Stark, mm-hmm. and that they, so they definitely do know. That's no, true. They that they know who she yeah, is. I think you, the you, question is about whether you know her abilities. Yeah. Well, I think it's yeah, I think it's whether or not they plan to leverage who she okay. is, right? Uh, whether or not like when Jockin gave her the coin, like he had this intent for her to come specifically because she is Arya Stark. Mm-hmm. Um and I guess it's how long of a game are they playing yeah. with her? And and for example, I think several theorists have kind of brought up that Tycho Nestoris knows about fake Arya. And he might also know about real Arya. So that's an example of if the Faceless Men and the Iron Bank are sharing information, then do they have some kind of strategic plan for for what to do with her? I think that the Faceless Men are going to be more important, and the Iron Bank Mm -hmm. are going to be more important in the books than in the show. So I, I just wonder if Arya's a moving part of more than she knows. I also think that it it fits in with this sort of double deception idea that we have throughout this chapter. There's multiple layers to a lot of these people's, you know, a lot of these entities' plans. So I don't know. I just, I think it's fun to speculate about. Bringing up uh, that Tycho has seen that he's familiar with Arya, in quotes, you know, is interesting because whether they tell Tycho anything or not, you could presume that he has shared information back with the Iron Bank Mm -hmm. who could share it with the faceless men. So they know there is a fake Arya, perhaps. Like, I don't, I think it's more likely that they know there's a fake Arya than it is that Tycho knows that Arya is fake, in other mm -hmm. words. Okay. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. And that there, well, there's the other the timing that we know from one of Arya's chapters is there's that ship that has come back yes. to Bravos that was at the wall the good or heart, was the good heart, uh, yeah, or elephant, one yeah. of those two, yeah, uh, that was uh, taking wildlings captives as slaves. Yeah. Um, excuse me, Aziz. Free folk captives as slaves. Excuse me. Mm. <laughs> and uh, also along those lines, yeah, we have to consider the possibility that Justin Massey is with fake Ari. He's supposed to go to collect the money from the Iron Bank. He's going to get to the wall, find John dead, and possibly not leave fake Aria there because why leave her there when John's dead? And then go onto the wall, go onto Bravos with her, which Nina suggests is a brilliant setup for Aria's ultimate identity test, seeing herself <laughs> played by someone she already knows. That would be, oh, man. what a wicked test that would be. Like seeing like, holy crap, this person is masquerading as me. And I know her, that's Jane. And she's going to not have a nose too, apparently. So, but whatever. Which Ugh. actually, as an aside, it's, it's a great little joke that when uh, she threatens Bont to rip Bonobo's nose off if he touches mm. her again, <laughs> which is a, you know, Tyrion missing nose. Hey, hey, good one, George. <laughs> that is just, it's I, so many possibilities here, but, I, but the, the idea of Arya encountering Jane as Arya is, bah, that, that's awesome. It is so awesome, and it fits with that idea that it fits with something I mentioned earlier, which is that I want for all these identity reveals to happen in rapid succession, mm. right? For you, you having Sansa come back to Sansa, Arya come back to Arya, and and simultaneously have you know have Jane sort of be, I guess, have the curse of fake Arya Stark being lifted. Yeah, she from she her. can kind of go back to being her herself. Yeah, that would be. Because Theon's like, no, don't be, don't not be Arya. It'll they'll kill you. But if but if things change enough, then maybe she can go back to being herself. So that is really so that's really fascinating to consider that possibility. Uh, so here's another thing: a couple of things Arya overhears before murdering Raph. The guards talk about a few things that are interesting. We already talked about Cersei being in charge again. Nina writes that it's probably not that big of a surprise after all. Cersei winning her trial. Is anyone really surprised that she wins her trial? No. After all, it's Gregor. Like, he's not going to lose his first fight as the Robert Strong, right? Like, no. I don't think so. And with Kevin dead and with the mountain, undead mountain at her back, like, who's going to stop her from seizing power again? Like, like, consider who's at King's Landing. Like, Randall Tarley is one tough-minded guy, but there's really not much there. You know, <laughs> like, What's Mace Tyrell? He may already be headed south. I mean, yeah, it doesn't really, doesn't really work. So setting aside Cersei's trial, because that's, that's a whole other topic that we don't really need to get into. I just wanted to refer to it. We have... Seven hells, this place is damp. She heard her guard complain. I'm chilled to the bones. Where are the bloody orange trees? I always heard there were orange trees in the free cities. Lemons and limes, pomegranates, hot peppers, warm nights... Girls with bare bellies. Where are the bare-bellied girls, I ask you? Down in Lissan and old Volantis. The other guard replied. He was an older man, big-bellied and grizzled. I went to Lis with Lord Tywin once, when he was hand to Ares. Bravos is north of King's Landing, fool. Can't you read a bloody map? <laughs> yeah, just tear into him, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is an idiot, yeah. Tywin went to lease, you say. That's interesting. Why did Tywin go to lease? My first instinct was part of the bride search. 
uh, mm-hmm. for Rhaegar, but maybe. maybe it was before that. And Nina suggests that there was a trade war at, around that time. And Ares took the side of the Volantines after Tywin said, let's stay out of it. Because you know how Ares liked to do hmm. the opposite of what Tywin said. Mm-hmm. And so maybe Lys was like neutral ground for negotiations or maybe just more simply, it was just on the way to Volantis. It is on the way. So that could be it. Do you guys have any random thoughts on the idea that Tywin went to Lys as hand to Ares or something related? I have mine, which is I think a lot of people somewhat think sometimes about Tywin and the sex trade. And we associate lease with that. So whether that, I don't know that I think that's why he went, but it makes me think of it. Yeah, about him concealing that aspect of himself. Yeah. He's like, I need a room with a tunnel to a brothel. (laughs) He arrives at the end. (laughs) All the way under the sea floor. (laughs) (laughs) What were you going to say, Clint? All I can think of is like those poor Lysini who had to deal with Tywin. <laughs> yeah, like the joy. Like, try to make this guy smile because, mm. nope, you're not, not, not likely. <laughs> so, Wrath discusses murdering Bobino on the 0.0001% chance it might be Tyrion. Now, clearly, this won't happen because Bobino, I mean, because Wrath is dead, but we have unfortunately seen this happen. This like people just killing random dwarfs on the tiny, tiny, tiny obscure chance it's Tyrion and or they lie to make Cersei think it's Tyrion. And Cersei has that moment where she's like, I really should have these guys executed for this, but I don't want to discourage anyone from going after Tyrion. So sorry, dwarfs of the world, you will continue to suffer. It's pretty awful, but it's realistic based on Cersei and these characters. I can't help but notice that Two bits here. One, there is definitely also a reward for Arya. That is who's right of there. Course, that of course, was, right. <laughs> but that would be a, quite a catch. But this is very. Does this scene reminds me of Tyrion right before he kills Tywin, listening to those two guards like talking about like what's going to happen at the trial, at Tyrion's mm-hmm. trial, which is what this play is about. So that's another wonderful connection. I mean, I, I love that parallel to Tyrion listening to the two guards outside his dad, his dad's room before he went in. I think that's a really great catch. Speaking briefly on sort of the potential consequences of what she might, just to jump back a little bit, yeah. of what she might end up at because she killed Wrath the Sweetling. I wonder if, because I, I think it would be very, it would, it would be kind of be jumping the gun. You know, this is her first T-Wow chapter. And if there are like significant consequences right afterward, that might be the break with the faceless men to the extent that there is one. Um, seems like it, it should happen later. I don't know. And later in the book, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. But I'm, wondering, I'm skeptical on the punishment being significant. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering if they're not going to care at all. I'm wondering if they're, they might actually see some advantage on it. And because there was one uh, line, it's a kind of a throwaway line, that the Sea Lord will be upset about this. Mm. This will cause trouble for the Sea Lord. And that might actually be to the faceless men's advantage. I really um, like that's a really interesting thing I didn't consider. Yeah, cause that. That might mm-hmm. be their aim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and so, you know, I don't know. It's possible, right? Yeah, the Sea Lord being upset, that's really interesting too, in the terms of the political culture in Bravos, because we also know that Sea Lords often assassinate each other. And that within mm-hmm. that within Bravos there is this struggle of there is this struggle for power within the government, and it would be shocking if the faceless men weren't involved in that. So that is, I had never thought about and that. It, it, That's really 
it ties in with what we were riffing on earlier, raffing on, no, riffing on earlier <laughs> with regards to whether the faceless men knew what play was going to be held at that they know. Like, it's one thing if they didn't know about the play, but really, are they really not aware of what Hari Swift is doing? Right. They're probably keeping tabs on him. <laughs> right. So like, oh, he's going to the same playhouse where our trainee is. Oh, that's interesting, but it's just a coincidence. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not a coincidence. Maybe you're like, there's definitely something here. There's the, the mist of Bravos is definitely hiding some details here. Speaking of hiding, great catch by Sophia while Raph is joking about Bobino being Tyrion. Not only is Arya the real prize nearby, but Tyrion really is or recently was hiding as a dwarf jouster. He really is just out in front playing a role that is a bit blatant. So that's really happening. But he's just way over in Slaver's Bay where people aren't necessarily going to get the reference or know. But that's pretty cool. It's so interesting in terms of the, you know, the mummer's farce radiating outside to the rest of the book, right? So we think about Raph wanting to kill Tyrion. Well, that ties back to the idea of Tyrion's trial being a miscarriage of justice, a mummer's farce as a miscarriage of justice. Um, While at the same time, you know, Arya's in front of him. And then if you add on this layer that Sophia points out, it, it is really this, you know, this double deception has the effect of causing people even outside of the story to kind of manifest the stereotypes, et cetera. Very well said. Uh, going back just briefly to the the con the comment by Raph about it being cold versus warm, and how that relates to the the house with lemon or the lemon trees and the red door and and Danny's vague memories. Well, that's very relevant here. Of course, there's not necessarily a lot we could say about it that we haven't said in other episodes, but we remind folks that. It's definitely also been mentioned that gardens of the wealthy can contain lemon trees. There, there are probably lemon trees in the Sea Lord's garden or a lemon tree. And that is where Danny s- supposedly stayed with the Sea Lord. So that definitely checks out. But it's still very interesting that this is being brought up. <laughs> it's still like, hmm, what's going on here? Do you guys have any thoughts on why this is being raised? George is making fun of the house with the red doors and Dorn uh, <laughs> theorists. He could be. He could be. Or he's or he's gonna just throw throw it right back in our face and be like, "Ha ha, <laughs> the tinfoil people were right." No, I, I doubt it. But you never know. A <laughs> couple of great questions from you all that have built up during the episode. We've got Igor uh, Perleko who says, "Is saying goodbye to Mercy that quote the idea that she's becoming merciless?" Eh, well, no, maybe that's kind of cool. Mother Merciless. Mm. You did make that same comment. Yes. So uh, you guys are on the same track here. Yeah. Mother Merciless becoming merciless. Yes. That's very good. I mean, you can't put that past George for making references like that. And Mercy, I mean, that's a very peculiar name, but very meaningful name. So, yeah. (laughs) It's not like he just named her, I don't know, Stacy. (laughs) Gwen. Gwen Stacy. Yeah. (laughs) So. Is Stacy like with an A E? Yeah. <laughs> Stacy. Yes. That's great. Targaryen Stacy. Yeah. <laughs> Stagon. <laughs> A child of Valyria writes Arya probably thinks Tyrion really raped Sansa. She will hate him, maybe even make her list. Cool. I did not think of that. I wonder if he 
if she gets that impression or believes that that's true, because she, I don't know if she knows otherwise. I have not considered that. Yeah, that's really, I, that's really interesting. It does fit with that. It fits with the whole story within a story, the way we tell stories matters theme that I think um, George likes to use to motivate what characters do. Yeah. We talked about how that part of the story of this play is not something that Tyrion would not maybe would have would struggle to swallow his anger if, if he's indeed angry, which this part might make him angry. But yeah, if it if if Arya believes it, then that's that's real bad. But maybe maybe Arya will talk to Sansa and he'll she'll be like, nah, that didn't happen. <laughs> so right. there's always that possibility. Uh, Dornish Dame says one thing about Sansa: the assumption seems to be that her marriage to Tyrion is consummated, and this perhaps impacts that. And Dornish James suggests maybe that will impact the air, the Harry the Air betrothal if more people have, like the idea that they're going to say, no, that marriage was never consummated. Well, what if, what about this? What if this play, people talk about the fact that Tyrion raped her. We know that didn't happen, but if it's a widespread belief, then it's kind of hard to argue that that marriage wasn't consummated. Huh. That's something else I didn't think of. Really good catch. I'm not sure how to respond to that, but it's a, definitely a possible wrinkle. What do you guys think? So that's a really interesting, you know, Lannister propaganda, right? If you think about this play as potentially being written as Lannister propaganda to like please the pit that has agents of the Lannister regime in it, I think that if you were Lannisters, you would want to t- tell the story that that mm-hmm. marriage was consummated. That benefits them, absolutely. I also think, you know, a couple people in the chat brought up how. Richard III is itself a piece of propaganda that doesn't reflect reality. So if this play is meant to be referential to Richard III, that's another example of how it could specifically be putting forth targeted propaganda. Mm, nice. Well said, yeah. And I think in response to the, the question about how common it is in Westeros, we did a kind of two-part episode on sex and sex and... and uh, marriage and the laws around kind of personal intimacy. And we, we went through a discussion as to you know, what consummation means in this context. Oh. And there are, there are exceptions upon exceptions, but the upshot is that consummation, once it's consummated, then it can't be annulled. And again, there are exceptions, especially if you're a Targaryen or the son of Tywin Lannister. But the upshot is like, that's that's the idea is that it makes it more complicated if there is uh, consummation and that goes to um, what Mary was just talking about about um, about it being Lannister propaganda because if if they can get out this the idea that it was consummated then Sansa can't just sort of you know throw off the shackles of that Lannister marriage because the the law to the extent it, it exists in Westeros would make that uh, illegal. Hmm. Well said. Well, straight from a lawyer. Listen up, folks. <laughs> uh, Guilty Undertaker says, Arya is left-handed. Maybe they were making her sew right-handed. Maybe that's why she's bad at sewing, because otherwise she's Could graceful be. and skilled and smooth. Um, but also, yeah, you just wonder about that with all her different identities. Is she like having to be right-handed and how difficult is that? You can't just use a brain trick to make yourself think you're right-handed. I mean, there's the core, you got to build up coordination with that. So Arya is quite possibly going to be an ambidextrous person. If she isn't already, she's certainly have, probably having to learn to do a lot of things right-handed. To that Dornish Dame says um, they think the fact 
that Arya's seen as graceful comes from her water dancing training with Sirio, mm. which I think we all agree on. I don't think we mentioned it, however. That is a good point. Yeah, she knows. That is a good point. Yeah, that's a great point because that is who teaches her about that. And she was not necessarily so graceful before that. I mean, she was just a little kid, so it's not like she wasn't, but she clearly has the talent for it because <laughs> uh, she didn't, didn't seem to take her that long to learn a lot of this stuff. Guilty Undertaker also says, what if Arya wanting to sail west of Westeros was due to a desire to escape those faceless men and not just idle curiosity as in the show? I have the same idea. I completely agree with that. If she doesn't, mm. even if I, even if you go with my theory that she's going to poison the faceless men, like a lot of them, there she couldn't possibly get them all. I mean, there's just some of them are just out there in the world and they would maybe find out what happened. So that would be perhaps the only way she could ever feel like she could escape them. It would be to go to a new realm that no one even necessarily knows exists. And of course, it also fits in really well with her love of ships, her association with ships and docks and stuff like that. Nymeria, yeah. Nymeria, yeah, yeah. sailing west, yeah. <laughs> yeah, finding new lands. <laughs> yeah, it really does fit quite well with that. Anything to add to that, y'all? I love it. No. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great idea. Cool, cool. Liet Rubenfeld says she realized her mother is dead after seeing it in a dream, so maybe that does give her more understanding of what's happening in her dreams. That's a good point. She did tell Sandor, like, yeah, no, I know my mother's dead. I saw it in a dream and Sandor, like, accepted that. Yeah, I think that indicates yeah, that, that yeah, that she is putting, you know, some shrift into what's happening in her dreams. She, she, yeah, I completely yeah. agree with that. It could just be that she can't put a name to it. She's like, I don't know, like, I'm a warg. She doesn't know what that is. But she's still kind of, she's going along with it without being able to, like, speak to it or see i feel like wouldn't properly. Arya be familiar with those terms though i'm not i don't know that she would be maybe old man, like, like, yeah, old maybe man tells old them man, so many stories maybe... i think she would know the word skin yeah, changer and war yeah you're right she has to know the word uh, yeah i think she's lying to herself about it i think she knows exactly what it is that's sort of my thought. yeah it is a very like willful stubbornness does seem to be part of it <laughs> well and then remember the idea that the mists part before her yeah. and there's this theory that the mists are controlled by green seers yeah so if Ari is able to control the mist to me that implies that she has some control over her green uh, sight rewarding. okay yeah I like that idea a lot there's some uh, speculation too on who Dana was playing in the play I didn't think about this myself but Nina and a few other people at least have suggested it's most likely Marjorie. Yeah, and I pointed out that they both have the A-E. Dana <laughs> and Marjorie. Dana. Yeah, good call. Very true. But I had something I wanted to bring up here, which was there's a specific interaction between Tyrion and Arya that reminds me very much of not, not the five-year gap, but the original 1993 letter, which was Tyrion talks to Arya and says we're perfectly matched for each other. And of course, oh. in that original letter, there was going to That's be right. there was going to be a love triangle with Tyrion, Arya, and John. Oh yeah. That's such mm. a great catch. That is a great catch. There's been so many great catches today. <laughs> uh, one more quote. Checked the trick daggers just to make certain no one had replaced one with a real blade. Someone had done that at the dome once and a mummer had died. Now, there are plenty of examples of this in real life. Uh, perhaps the most famous is Brandon Lee, a.k.a. The Crow, a.k.a. Bruce Lee's son, was killed in a, by blanks, not, not blanks, in a prop gun. There's some pretty horrible examples. I did some research and kind of wish I hadn't. There was a guy that just was like, 
there was production delays on some soap opera and this guy was like, can you believe this? And he just like jokingly picks up a prop gun and like acts like he's shooting himself in the head and actually shot himself in the head and died. Oh my God. Yeah, like he's just trying to be funny and accidentally killed himself. But not to bring be a downer, but we should consider that in this element, in a, in a playhouse where the faceless men are associated, this might have been entirely on purpose with a specific mm. target in mind. Like, after all, this is, she's not, as we've alluded to, she's certainly not the first faceless man to train here, uh, most likely. And yeah, like someone's sneaking that in, like just swapping a blade. That's a really sneaky way to kill someone, like swap a, a prop blade for a real one. You make someone else the murderer and like, who's going to know who did that? It's really sneaky and dark and yeah. Yeah, I could, I could absolutely see that as a, as a way to have killed somebody in the past. That's great. It's a great theory. Kind of, kind of like it fits with the notion that maybe the faceless men knew what Arya would do if uh, these people showed up. That's a bit of a stretch knowing that they would know Raph would trigger a response with her, but still. Uh, it's still worth considering. I like the idea of sword swapping in that maybe this has some, one of the Targaryen sword, you know, either Dark Sister um, is is out there. Um, and the idea that maybe that sword came into someone's position because there's a false sword placed somewhere. Oh, yeah. Um, false so I, I wonder if there's something like that going on. That's a good call, yeah. This is related to something we talked about earlier, but I wanted to throw it out as something that we're not going to answer. This is a question for people to consider. Rolling Knight from Flick says, what did Jockin see in her? What was it he recognized in her that led to this? We, we, like I said, we touched on this long-term plan, what it was he saw in her that, well, we don't know what their goals are. We don't know what the faceless men want. We don't know, is it just they're trying to kill dragons? Is it that simple? Or what else are they doing? So it's, without knowing that, it's really hard to guess what qualities she has that can help them fulfill that. Or if they're just always on the lookout for people like her. Yeah, there's tinfoil that maybe like Jockin was deliberately in the black cells so yes. that he could, you know, somehow smuggle his way into Arya's path. You know, I, I think that's interesting. I don't know how much basis there is for it, but it plays back in this idea of how long of how long is a faceless man's game with Arya. Yeah. Cool. All right. Unless there are any other comments or questions or last final thoughts, let's say thanks to everyone. Once again, I hope you guys enjoyed uh, the snippets from the audio production. We've completed two chapters. A third one is in the works. In fact, we got the uh, narrator, uh, who is the famous and excellent All Shift X, has sent his Hmm. recording over just this morning for... Tyrion too. Yeah, I think that's very cool. I was really hoping it for it. I don't know. There's just something about having his voice for Tyrion too that I think is yeah, a really good, good match. So <laughs> that'll be quite a while because I still need more voices. So yep. please submit. You can see details on Facebook, Discord, or you can just email me for more information. Yeah, WestrosHistory at gmail.com. Uh, we were also discuss things regularly on Discord or Facebook, etc. So you can certainly check us out there. What is next for Learned Hands Pod? What are you guys working on? Um, and feel free to drop what you've put out recently as well. Let people know some specifics. Merrick, go ahead. 
Well, we are working on uh, our, our next episode is going to be about the Aragorn's tax policy quotation nice. and, and what it means if if George is successful. Uh, and we're actually taking um, submissions from the people that are members of the Westerosi Bar Association. What is the Westerosi Bar Association, you might ask? You can go to westerosbar.org, and that is where we do our sort of uh, learned hands version of Patreon. Uh, Instead of giving us money, you donate money to legal charities, um, and you can join our Slack and all that that cool stuff. So it's those people that are involved with our podcast will be contributing to this next episode that we're really excited about. Um, So if you enjoyed what you heard here, you can find us on pretty much every podcast platform we're on twitter uh at learned hands pod is that right Clint? that's right learned hands pod. yeah yeah um and yeah feel free to to check us out that's westerosbar.org and learned hands pod i am a member of the westerosi bar i am member number 420 I think it's mm. we are. Interesting. Yes, we are. Sorry, we are. Yes, History of Westeros is number 420. That's right. <laughs> um, we, we did just have our third episode on the Dance of the Dragons, nice. um, which I know uh, folks have been, uh, a lot of folks have been putting out a lot of great content uh, about, including yourselves. Um, we are looking at some of the, the legal issues. Um, and our the first part was about the Great Council of 101 AC. The second part was about the Greens coup, and then we just had our third part, uh, which was about how law and literature re- reflects um, some of the the themes that get brought up in A Dance with Dragons. Um, and I, I think that um, the ep- they're good. They're good. We're, we're, we're doing some good work there. Yeah, yeah, so, you guys uh, really I would are. encourage folks to check those out. It's true. It's really, it is a rich angle to take on a song of ice and fire laws and legal situations it's, it's no end to it there's so much like the more i've mm-hmm. as long as you guys have been around every once in a while an idea pops in my head or someone suggests and i'm like hey that's an idea for learned hands pod and there's mm-hmm. it's already a long list so and i know you guys yes, you guys is. you guys are very long you list. know that so uh, i'm really telling the audience that <laughs> um so let's see here next up for us is the forsaken with indie peak Robert, the man, will be our guest for that. It's a big chapter. Probably the chapter that most gets cited as a favorite other than this one. That seems to be Mercy and the Forsaken seem to be the two most popular of the chapter, sample chapters so far. Probably Elaine one would be next. Uh, your mileage may vary, of course, but that seems to be, from where I'm sitting, that seems to be the, the gist of people's uh, favorites, etc. As far as our own episodes that we mentioned in this one, if you're looking for more, check out our Blackfire series, Aegon the Unworthy was mentioned. So that's the first one. So you needn't listen to the whole series, but you certainly could. Uh, Aegon the Unworthy is the first episode on our podcast feed. We moved things around because we can do that these days on Anchor, and that's fun. Uh, so that's you just scroll right to the beginning, and there it'll be. We also mentioned Sirwin of the Mirror Shield. That's a fun episode. It's shorter than our usual the video version is really excellent. Ashea put a lot of work into the graphics for that one. And uh, it's a fun topic filled with parallels, which is one of our favorite things to discuss. We also brought up the Faceless Man in the Iron Bank quite a bit. Our Fire and Blood episode called Fire and Blood Faceless Man in the Iron Bank is a good example. But we've also, of course, talked about that stuff a lot during Valar Aridus in Arya's chapters. Um, I still... And I suppose in the Doom of Valyria a little bit yeah, as well. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I, I, I keep saying I'm going to make a Doom of the Faceless Men episode and a Arya and the Red <laughs> Keep episode, but I haven't done it yet. But one day, one day, 
So thanks, everybody. Uh, appreciate y'all coming out live and asking us questions and chatting us up. Uh, thanks to our wonderful guests for a whole host of great takes. Definitely check out Learned Hands if you haven't already. Uh, thanks to Ashea for running so many things at once over there off camera. Thanks to our mods on Facebook for managing uh, things over there, holding the fort down there. Same goes for all our friends on Discord and Slack and Flick. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro hey, and for contributing uh, the voice. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valoritas music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular History of Westeros music and outro music. Thanks to the Bengineer for making our sound quality the best it could be. Bengineer is also a big part of the TWOW audio project. Thank you very much to our patrons for financing this History of Westeros operation. It's never uh, gets old for me to say that we wouldn't be here without you because it's never not true. So thank you all. Can I make a special shout out as well to um, Alex Carmichael, yeah. just because we did the Mercy audio play. If you listen to the Mercy audio play, we have all of the credits there, but it was it was a lot of his work, his very hard work. Very um, so a shout out to him. And he's really good at it. The sound, the music that was in there, it's all is his work. So yeah, like he did a fantastic job. And, and thanks to both of you for having us on. Oh, you're um, really, we really appreciate it. Cool. Yeah, it was Bob. Definitely, this was a great time. Yeah, yeah well, I look thanks forward for, to seeing. Thanks for the patience of three hours. <laughs> yeah, thanks for yeah, thanks for being part of this long episode. And I really look forward to getting to hang out with you guys at a convention again. We've, we've done that a few times, and well, it shouldn't be that long again before we get a chance, right? Doing it. Hell yeah. Doing soon, it. soon, a dream of spring. Yeah, that's that's exactly the right phrase. <laughs> with that. Make sure to check out Here Be Dragons. We're talking D&D today, which uh, that's cool. That's a good topic. And we The will... good D&D. The good D&D. Yes, the good D&D. <laughs> right. The, the game, not Dan and Dave. Yes. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons. Right. To be clear. So for everyone on the History of Westeros side, we say adios until next time. And you know what to do. Valar, reread us. <laughs>